So hello everyone, here I am, it's Chris with you today, and it's going to be really down and dirty talk today. I interviewed Stacy and Bob Gerlich a couple weeks ago, and they are New York City cops. And I say cops because I think when I think about a New York City policeman, it sounds so official, and I think being a New York City cop is such an iconic statement in the world that these two people really are New York City cops, like true blue cops. And they are a married couple. They've been married for over 20 years. Don't ask me how. And by the way, at the end of this interview, you will also wonder how that's even possible for two cops of this level to maintain a marriage. So Stacy took it up a notch and uh, tried out for and joined what is the, the SWAT version of the New York City cops, and it's called ESU, Emergency Services Unit. And the stories she has of being an ESU, especially a woman in the ESU, she has a whole a whole topic about uh, being a woman in the in the police department and then being in this ESU. She's like climbing on bridges. She had to go into what they call confined space training, which sounds like euphemistic because she went into a sewer and had to get in and get out. Um, and it wasn't like a clean sewer. They don't clean it out for her. She actually had to train in the sewer. So there's all this like really cool training that goes along with what she did. And then, like I said, that's a level up. And then just we'll talk so much about the New York City police lifestyle of what it is to be a cop and how compassionate you have to be and how fearless you have to be and how disciplined you have to be. And really, if you're someone who has ever thought about becoming a police person, person. Disciplined is the word that just kept coming to my mind again and again during this conversation. And when you listen to the stories and the backgrounds they have, it's a very different story for each of them. Bob comes from a police family. So that is kind of straightforward for him. But Stacy had a not so fortunate upbringing. And that's a really nice way to say she had an incredibly rough life, an incredibly rough upbringing. So her whole motive in becoming a policewoman was to give back. And she saw people helping her when she was a kid, and she wanted to be able to turn that out to them. Neither of them, I don't believe either of them, finished um, finished an undergrad degree. So there's kind of ways you can do it, you know, differently. Each of them is retired. I should say that. So um, we kind of went back in time a little bit in this conversation to be able to talk about their experiences, and they do give you an idea of what might be a little different now from when they, you know, would have started becoming a cop and what was available now. They say, you know, you got to go get your degree, get your education under your belt, give yourself some options. But one of the cool things to think about, too, if police work is in your um, purview is all the various types of jobs. I mean, they were even saying that like, you can't even believe how much how much different work is available to you once you are on the police force. You could have an admin job. You could be on the Mounties. You can be, um, you know, in transportation. You can do what she does with the ESU, like a SWAT team. You can be a beat cop. You can be a detective. There is just a wealth of careers and ways to live your life as a, as a policeman or a policewoman. So that's really cool. And then also thinking about the 
the work hard, play hard as a whole lifestyle. So we think, oh, work hard, play hard. That just, you know, means you go to work and you work really hard that day and then you come home and you, you know, you play or you play on the weekends. No, no, no. Like extrapolate that, take that out over decades and say, I'm going to make a sacrifice here, kind of like you would in the military and have a really conceivably difficult job where people might shoot at me. I, you know, have my life possibly at risk every single day. And I'm going to do that for 20 years. And then I'm going to retire. And then I'm going to have, you know, a pension, I'm going to have some benefits, and I'm going to have a different life after this. And I can still consult, I can still be on the force, there's other things that I can do after this. So I I think just in looking at this space, if you're someone who does have a a strong, compassionate, service-oriented mentality, but also is, like I said, fearless, and you've ever had any kind of thought about um, looking in the police force, this will be a really good conversation for you to listen to. They give a lot of really good hard knocks kind of advice and information. And if you're even thinking that you want to be a psychologist, you might want to listen up because there's ways to use your psychology degree as a police person, as an interrogator, as, you know, taking it on to the FBI. It's just, it, it just goes on and on. And I am a complete novice in this arena. So you'll notice as we go through the interview, I'm asking all the questions as though I, I, I as though, which is true, I don't know. Um, so if you're someone who doesn't have any any familiarity at all, or you never thought that you even knew anything about being a police other than what you see on TV, like I did, then listen up and you will find a wealth of information. And if you're just a voyeur and you want to kind of listen in because it sounds really cool to talk to a New York City cop, definitely listen in because there's some amazing, incredible stories. And these are two outstanding professionals that I was so fortunate to to speak to today in my husband's office, actually, which was really, which was really cool. And that is how I know Stacy. I won't give you any more information because she gives, she can give that away herself because my husband is a physician. I have HIPAA to care about. So without further ado, here is our conversation with Stacy and Bob Gerlich, New York City Cops. Okay, so here I am today for a, a really informational podcast with Stacy and Bob Gerlich, who are from New York City, which is the small part of the story, because the big part is they are New York City cops, right? Which is so cool for all of us to hear about, because I think it's almost iconic to be a New York City cop. So today we're going to hear about that, but even beyond that, Stacy has a pretty um, storied career in the emergency services unit of um, in New York City, which is the level beyond the the police department. So she can tell you more about that. But um, they're both retired now. But we're going to go back in time just a little bit and act as though we are in the thick of it in um, in the New York City Police Department and in the ESU. So tell me Stacy, when, as though it were one of your last years on the force, what is it that you would say that you do? Well, as an emergency service cop, um, we are the ones that are called from the police officers that are on the street. When they can't handle a situation, they call us in, and then we go in, and we, um, we are the special tactics 
unit of the department um, where we have heavy weapons. We go in um, when there's an emotionally disturbed person that might be up on top of a bridge. We have the capabilities of climbing up there and rescuing those persons that are up there endangering themselves who have suicidal thoughts. Um, We also go in and um, there's hazardous situations where sometimes the fire department is not available and we are trained in certain hazardous materials. Um, I also, uh, you know, I also um, was trained in several different types of weapons. We were trained in warrant um, executions, which means sometimes, you know, when a warrant has to get executed and there may be people or persons inside a apartment complex, such as a housing project, we're called in and we go in there and we ram the door with a a ram. The ramming rod. Yes, with a ramming rod. And then we go in and with the heavy weapons and we go in and we take down the persons that are in there. And um, our main focus is everyone coming out safe, no matter who you are, um, you know, and um, we don't want to go home at the end of the night knowing that um, we were not able to save someone's life. Okay, so I'm already panicked. I'm already freaked out because this is, you say heavy weapons, and I'm thinking if I have a gun in my hand, I I already have a a heavy weapon. So when do you say, just so we'll go back and figure out how this even happened that you're on this force, but what is a a heavy weapon if I'm thinking a gun is a heavy weapon? Well, a gun, with a normal street cop, with a normal street cop, they either carry a 9mm or a 40 caliber handgun. A heavy weapon with the emergency service unit um, consists of several different things. We have automatic rifles, we have shotguns, we have um, shields, protective shields, which shield us in case anybody's firing at us with heavy weapons. So that's... Oh, like in riots and yes, things, that's when you would riot, get called also? Yep, okay, riots. Well, we get called, Mounted gets called, a lot of units get called, um, especially with executive protection. And what executive protection is, we maintain the rooftops and the perimeters. When the dignitaries come into town, especially the president, the city is on lockdown. So our main objective then is to go up on top of the rooftops and secure the rooftops and make sure that there is no, um, no one up there that can create harm to anybody in that area. It's kind of a frozen zone. So that's basically one of the things we do. There's some other things that we do that I really can't talk about, but <laughs> I would it, imagine there's a few things, right? Yes. But okay. as far as, um, as far as everything in the city, um, the emergency service unit in the New York city police department is the best unit there we are the ones that secure everything so in terms of it the the most highly trained the most sophisticated levels of equipment and things that you have to assist you in your when you say the best yes yes we go to special tactics school sts um we are we also are trained in repelling out of helicopters we're trained um repelling off buildings we are also trained in climbing up all the bridges in new york city so there's a lot that we're trained in. We also have um, training with gas meters um, in case of an explosion or there's a gas leak where back 20 years ago um, when I first got trained, 23 years ago when I first got trained, um, we had to go into a sewer and they taught us about confined space training. And, and you have to go in there with a gas meter in case of an explosion to detect gas or radon or something in there and you can when you're in the sewer it's very dark you can get caught up on 
things in a very confined space and you have to be trained how to get yourself out of those situations and it's a very complex thing but uh, it's something you have to do it's part of our training and you have to pass everything there's no freebies if you can't pass one of the um, training curriculum you will not be put into that unit so there's no electives for ESU it's everything all or nothing yes okay that this is fascinating to me because I have absolutely zero expense experience in in anything military in anything fighting and anything <laughs> related to weapons or spider-man techniques you're talking about being on buildings but to me I, i'm just horrified i can't even imagine doing that yeah. so i am beyond impressed so i, I want to figure out like when you how did you end up even being here to do that when you were little were you one of the kids who was on like jungle gyms and you were just kind of a little bit ADD and all over the place or how does it how does a nice woman like you end up (laughs) getting trained (laughs) to walk through a sewer well you know I didn't really have such a great childhood growing up and um, ever since the time I was nine years old I always said to myself that I'm going to get out of this situation because my parents weren't the greatest and I didn't have really great sisters and brothers you know they might have had some issues um, with drugs um, and I and said, where were you in the order of your family uh, I have an older sister a brother I'm the third child and then there's a fourth child okay And um, I pretty much said to myself at nine years old, it's either I join the Navy or I'm going to become a police officer because I wanted to give back um, some sense of security to people that may have experienced what I had experienced. And at that time, um, years ago in the 70s and 80s growing up as a child, the police were the iconic figures. And when your mom and dad were in home, the police back then were your mom and dad. And they were the ones that taught you right from wrong. And um, that's what I wanted to do. I wanted to give back to um, society, children that may have experienced what I experienced, or I wanted to um, experience other things that children may have experienced or other people may have experienced, like poverty. I was fortunate enough to be in in a a mid-range family growing up, um, so I wasn't at poverty level. But when I first became a cop, I was a housing police officer, which patrolled the housing projects. And it's very low income, and there's a lot of poverty and a lot of drugs. And, um, you know, uh, I've seen a lot of horrific things. And um, there's a lot of times that I sat and I spoke with children that were abused or people that thought, oh, you're a cop and you have a great education, which I did not. I dropped out of school when I was 16. Oh, great. And, we'll talk about that, too. You know, I got a GED and I made a better life for myself, but I tried to talk to the people that were there and say, listen, if I could do it, you can do it. Just because you're low income or you have no education doesn't mean you can't better yourself in life. It's not always about um, having a prestigious college degree. It's not always about coming from money and being fortunate to have everything you want. You have to experience life. And I learned a lot from being a cop from people that um, experienced other things. It really taught me a lot about people. And I grew up very fast. So wait a minute. So when you were a kid, so when you were nine, did you have um, a mentor? Did you... So that you say the police were kind of like your parents in those in that generation. Yeah. I understand that completely. So did you have an uncle or an aunt or anyone on the force or any exposure to it within your family or someone close to you? No, not at all. And I remember when I did say that I wanted to be a New York City police officer, which there wasn't many women at the time, even when I was a child, um, my family was dead against it. And um, 
they uh, they really shunned me because uh, they were like, you know, that's not a job a woman does. Oh, interesting. Yeah. Because I'm just wondering where I almost think if my daughter came in, it would be like my daughter coming and saying, I would like to be Spider-Man. This is how I would view it. I think now as a parent, probably relatively, right? Your parents probably were like, where is this even coming from? How are you even getting these ideas, right? So so when you decide that when you're nine, then what happens? Because you, are you a really good student? I was a very good student, but I also experienced very bad abuse at home from my mom. And uh, I always emotional said, abuse or physical? Can I ask or just both, any kind? Okay, both. It was it was not good. And um, you know, my dad worked a lot, so my dad was unaware of what was going on. And uh, you know, of course, my mother would make excuses and blame other things. And um, I always said to myself, I can't wait to turn eighteen because when I'm eighteen, I'm an adult, and I can get out of this situation I'm in and I can even if I had to work for two dollars an hour I always had that thing where I'm getting away from this life and I'm going to better myself and I'm never going to be like they were you know I'm glad that I did have a mom and dad but at the same time the emotional scars are still there for life Mm -hmm. you know so okay so then you take refuge in school a little do you have a, a couple teachers who are supportive particularly for you so you're really just on your your older sister or brother just so okay so it's just it's you yes it's just it's just you on your own really making these decisions okay so walk me through a little bit in high school because what happens on this podcast is people come from all different backgrounds and it's really inspiring for all of us to hear about how people overcome how they um get to live the life that they are meant to live how they end up having uh, a life that they can be proud of because it's your story and only you get to write it right so um so what happens from the time say you're you're nine you're like fifth sixth grade kind of those transitional times and then in high school what happens because you mentioned you didn't finish high school in, in the traditional way well, when I was in high school, first I started in junior high school, and then when I was in high school, um, I didn't grow up in such a great neighborhood, and everybody there, like, you know, like the majority of the teenagers at that time were either into drugs or they were getting pregnant, and, you know, like I said, um, that wasn't my thing. My goal in life was to get out of where I was and better myself, get a job, you know, have children later, get married, have children later. First and foremost is you have to take care of yourself. You can't rely on someone to take care of you, and um, I think that I was very fortunate enough at nine years old to have these thoughts as an adult because, um, you know, you're, you're only taught so much in life, and you make yourself what you want to be in life and if you choose to go down a path doing drugs because it's it's repetitive in a family well that's a choice you made the choice I made was to be somebody in life and I swore that I would never go into drugs because I had an older sister that started using heroin at 16 um she's 11 uh actually she's 16 years older than me then my brother who's 11 years older than me he started using cocaine so from seeing a sister at a young age overdosed several times. That did not leave a good impression. But what left the impression was the police officers that showed up there that were willing to help save that life when my mother turned her back and says, I don't care what happens to my daughter. I'm done with this. You know, and my father, who was her stepfather, he cared more about her than my mom. Mm-hmm. So um, that left a lasting impression. And um, from that day forward, I said to myself, you know what, I want to be like those guys. Those were my heroes, you know, and um, I followed in those footsteps. And I made sure that uh, I was going to live my dream. 
Yeah, and it's so interesting, too, because you have these people who come in your life in strange ways or in what some people might think inopportune ways, right? So the police come not to because your um, you know cat is up in a tree, but because your sister is really in a, a, a horrifying situation, and I feel for you, and I'm sorry about that. It's, it's really a traumatic, and I, I get that to the core. I understand that. Um, so when you're – how do you figure out? Is there a career fair? Is there a, is there a policeman on campus? Is there a policewoman that you learn from? How do you figure out even how to be a cop? Because I wouldn't know unless I went – I think right now, if I wanted to join the Army, maybe I could figure out how to do that. If I wanted to be a cop, I, I don't know what I would do. Would I go to a – what would I do? What would you what, – what did you do? Well, back then when I was 16 years old, which would be in 1982, um, I would see the footposts which is something they don't have now, which is the community policing, but they used to have a foot post. And I would sit and I would talk to the rookies and I would ask them what Is a po- foot post a building or is it where the, a foot the, post they hang when, out? When a police officer's on foot and they're assigned maybe three or four blocks in a neighborhood. Like a corner. Like, yes. yes, I remember. Yes. Mm-hmm. And I would go over there and I would talk to them and ask them like different things like what's your experience? You know, um, are you happy doing it? Um, you know, do you, do you feel comfortable? I mean... I see sometimes people say things in abusive ways and you guys act very professional and how do you in how do you not internalize the abusive people and they said it's a job and this is what we knew what we were getting involved in and um the way to give back to people that are abusive or um do not like the police is to just Kill them with kindness. I hate to say, right? kill them. No, but, exactly. Hurt you know. people, hurt people. Right? We all know that. Exactly. So. And uh, I said, you know what? I'm going to do this. And like I said, there wasn't that many women. There was a lot of male officers that I did speak with, and um, I was very impressed because it, they were very professional and they gave me some sense of of understanding of what it would be like to be be a police officer. Some gentlemen um, did say that it would be very difficult for women because a lot of the old-time cops were from the Vietnam War, and they didn't want women there, and women were not accepted in the police department because a lot of changes had to be made. What year is this? This is 19... 1982 when I was 16. Okay, so it's the same. I'm thinking like when women first started going in the locker rooms and all that kind of stuff for reporting. It's uh, There's just a lot of that yes, kind yes. of information coming up okay yep and then um i just said you know what 1982 i took the test i scored extremely high i was number seven on the list written test written test okay. over a hundred thousand people took that test and i was too young to get hired wait a minute 16 so who signs up for this test because you're you're incredibly precocious right? <laughs> there's these cops on the street corner right and there, there's this little kid i would think yep. of you as a little kid at that yep. time coming up and asking me all these really adult questions and like you said you grew up very fast so it makes sense but but how did how did you sign up for the test how did you even know where to go how do you how did you do that well they had an announcement and there was three departments no they had it it's a city-wide thing um, okay it, it, it department of personnel in the city when they have job openings, they'll announce it, and then you have to just sign up for it. You may have to pay a fee, and then um, they'll they'll say, okay, this is the date and time for the test, and then you compete with, at that time, 100,000 people, people, and um, it's a written test. And, um, and they're all ages, right? That's an all-comers, because what they're hiring is new officers. Right, and at that time, you could be 16 years old to take the test, and I believe Bob... I believe, uh, I don't remember what the maximum age was at that time. 
Yes, at that time, I think you had to be hired before you actually turned 32. Oh, pretty young. So you young. had a limited time between 16. I think you actually would get hired by the time you were 20 or 21. And then at that point, up until the age of 32, you could actually get hired. So your test would be good if you took your test when you were 16 like you did and it scored that well, then you could use that test result yes, until it, you were 21? It would last for five years <laughs> at that time. Wow. And I was 20. I was. Um, Can you do that now? Oh, it's I just a want, very I just want to change different. information. Okay, so as you take the test, now you're now you're seven, number seven out of a hundred plus thousand people of varying ages, but definitely no more than in their thirties. Now, what happens? Well, now what happened was I was too young to get hired. So at the time, they would divide you up into bands, you know, different age groups, different scores, and then they would put you in a, like a lottery system, and they would just like put you in band A, B, C, and D, and, you know, then they would place you on a list. They would redo the list. So because if I was of age at 20 years old, when I took the test and I was number seven, I would have got hired immediately. So I had to be the minimum of 20 years old. And I was 20 years old when I got hired nine days. So what's the point of them letting you take the test? Was it just to kind of have a pool of applicants available? Is that... at that time, I think they just tried to uh, to afford everyone an opportunity because these tests did not come around very often. I see. So, okay. Yeah. So it's like it might be – it's not like it's every six months that this test is going on. Okay, that explains yeah. it. So. Yeah. And, and also with that process is a lot of people may not qualify, whether it's a medical issue, a psychological issue, oh. or other background check information that they may fail. So at that point, out of that 100,000, you may end up with, say, 25,000 that are actually past all the process and will be on the hiring stage to be hired. So there is a great risk of people not being, or should I, I say, that. being disqualified for other various reasons. Because they, if they fail in that, they fail for good. It's yes. not that as though this is a one-year thing and they'll be able to come back next year, something that's yes. on their background or medical. Yes. Or crim- okay. It could be criminal, criminal too, yep. yep. So, yeah, you know, okay. and uh, and then when uh, I went through the investigation process, I passed everything. You know, there's a medical, there's a psychological, there's oral tests, um, and I passed them. So let's talk about the tests because I don't know how similar they are now, but how grueling is that? I, I think I would crumble under the pressure. Would I? I don't uh, know. <laughs> you know. No, because you know why? When I took, when I became a police officer, I was 112 pounds at five foot seven, and everybody laughed at me and thought I was a joke and thought I couldn't do the job. I know I joked yesterday. I think you're like a Zootopia. Yeah, like a little bunny. (laughs) Exactly. He's gonna make it. And um, but I trained for this. I was an athlete since I was 16. I was big runner. What kind of sports? What did you do? I was big runner. I was into weightlifting. So even though I was 112 pounds soaking wet, and people laughed at me and thought I would never make it, well, I proved them wrong because. There is a physical agility test that you do have to take back then before you became a cop. Today's day and age or today's society, you could take it in the academy and they give you many, many chances even if you fail to... Oh, you're like, you can kind of be on-the-job training-ish? Yep. Okay. So back then, um, we had the dummy drag, and the dummy drag was about 225 pounds, and a lot of male officers couldn't drag that dummy. I think it was about maybe 10 or 20 feet, Bob? Yeah, yeah, approximately. How do you drag? Your, are you able to, is it, what does it look like? What does the bag look like? Is it just a, like a 
boxing it, bag? Or no, like, it's a, actually, like a person? It's actually made out of boxing material, but it's an actual person who's about okay. six feet tall. So you're supposed to like pull under the um, the armpits and drag? Yep, pull under the armpits, cross over. And the best way for me, because I was so small, um, most of the weight I carried on my thighs. Yeah. And I was able to drag Because your legs guy. are really strong. Yep, I was able to drag him. And there was a lot of guys that were bigger than me that could not do it. We also had to climb over a six-foot wall. I had no issues with that. We did a run every day. I never, ever, ever once dropped out of a run. And when I got hired, it was in July of 1986. Sometimes we'd have to run in that New York City heat. Oh, which humidity. Was, yep. And it was 107 degrees. There was people dropping out left and right. And to this very day... Um, I never dropped out of one run and I was so at times so like sweaty and I was so like fatigued but I said to myself if I drop out then I'm going to prove everybody right that I couldn't make it on this job and I could not you know be like the men Mm -hmm. and I would never let that happen because that was my dream and I was not going to let anyone take it away not even myself right I think you had set it up in your head right you had a lot to lose there yes. was, it was do or die. There's no way, no yes. other way for you. Where are you living at the time? Where, where What's Brooklyn. your home situation? I grew up in Brooklyn, New York. And uh, as soon as I became a cop, I moved out two weeks later to Long Island. Didn't know anybody. And right. we used to, everybody in the city used to make fun. Oh, Long Island is the country or whatever. But you know what? I said, I have to. It is beautiful. <laughs> it is beautiful. And a lot of, you know, a lot of my um, friends, you know, thought because I moved out there, oh, you're better than everybody else. No, it, that's not the reason why. I wanted to reinvent myself as as an adult and forget about um, the constant reminders of my family life. I mean, when I say constant reminders, if you constantly see those people, you'll constantly be reminded of them and then you can't let your mind grow or yourself grow because you're going to be in the same situation. If you want to progress in life in any kind of um, field of work, and you really want to make it, you have to make changes in your life and you have to take yourself out of there and recreate yourself, especially at a young age. And that's what I did. And, you know, I never look back. I love that, that environmental impact. Trevor Noah in his book writes about that, Um, you know, growing up in, in the areas, whether it's in the projects or in the, you know, quote unquote slums, but it's also in just the cultural acceptance. Like you said, oh, you think you're better than us. Oh, you think that, you know, you're all that. And if you stay there and you are trying to better yourself, you just keep getting dragged down. He makes this point very clearly in his book that it'll just keep getting, you know, you, the energy pull is, is great. And it's hard to change your DNA. Correct. really hard and you've done it and congratulations because that's it's a, a feat like you. that's almost impossible i Thank think you. so um okay so i 1000 percent get that so now you're living alone alone well i had a boyfriend at the time okay. but you know it was i had my own apartment so okay so you're supporting yourself yes and doing all that okay so now we do the the drag we, we do the physical, <laughs> we do the mental, we do the psychological test is a, is an oral test or do it's they both. make you stay by yourself for 10 days and see if you survive? Wow. What happens? <laughs> well, at that time, they probably asked you about a thousand questions in a written exam and that's how they would eliminate people. Did and you know, did you, did you reverse psychology it? Did you like, as you're seeing the questions, did you think like, oh, I think they want this answer. Is it one of those kind of tests where you find yourself in crazy town? Uh, you know what? Yes, I did think about that, but I did answer very truthfully because I they ask the same questions in different formats and I think that they want to see if um, you're consistent with you as a person and your integrity and your mental status because if you say yes to the same questions 
hey, then they know, all right, this person pretty much is focused. If you start giving answers with gibberish and bouncing around and changing answers, well, I guess to them that that wouldn't be a sane person. I mean, if I was interviewing someone and they were all over the place while I was asking the same questions in a different manner, I would think twice, too, that, hey, something's wrong, you know? Yeah, no, for sure. So are they... um I don't know. The question's kind of the same now. Do you have any do you have any way of knowing that? I, what kind? Of, okay, so do you have any example of the type of a question that they would ask you if you were trying to become a cop? Well, I know what they're still asking from right. thirty some odd years ago. They ask about a house, drawer a house, a person, and a tray, and okay. they still kind of the like what they would do in kindergarten if you were having <laughs> trouble with the teacher, right? The same kind of thing, right? Because they get a lot of information from that. Yes, yes, yes. You know, and uh, you know, I thought at first it was like. You know, Mickey what the Mouse. heck is this? Yeah. yeah, you know, what is this? But I understand why now, because now that once I was on the other side and already hired, now I know the reasons why they asked those tests. I can't reveal the answers I was going to say, why. can you tell us? No. No, I can't Can do you that. tell us what they reveal? Um, they reveal if you're an open person. They reveal... Kind of um, a mindset? Yes. They, um, with certain things, they they are a reflection of the person you can possibly be or, you know, the persons that you see yourself being, you know. So um, would you agree with that, Bob? Yeah. Yeah. What they basically do is they're trying to, in a written format at least, try to determine if people are consistent with what they're believing. Because if you tell the truth, it's the truth. And it's one version and you may stray off a little here and there, but it's all consistent. If you start giving multiple answers to the same questions in different formats, they want the end result to be the same answer through all of those questions. And for whatever reason, I don't know the actual reasons why they have a thousand questions from, you know, is there a man living in the moon? Is the moon made out of cheese? Oh, wow. I, these, these were some of the questions, as <laughs> right, well as right. other questions. Yeah. But a thousand questions, they're all pretty much yes, no, true, false answers. Because you have that many questions, if it was a written out answer, it would take them forever to process everybody. Right, I see. But they have whatever their reasons, you know, they'll say draw a house. And then if you don't put a handle on the doorknob, that would reflect one thing. If you don't have two or three windows in the house, that may reflect something else. Because they used to say when our kids were little, if they don't draw like hair and, uh, you know, like, yeah, if they draw yes. blue eyes or if they just draw eyes. Yeah. Yes. But the, the whole application process is to try to give them the advantage of weeding out people who may not have the, uh, the ability to deal with certain situations in life. Because let's face it, it's a stressful job. So stressful. And if they can give you stressful situations, see how you handle. If it's questioning a certain pattern and answering questions to a certain pattern, that would send up a red flag for a candidate or also say that, yes, this person is, in their opinion, stable enough to handle stressful situations. And to be empathic, right? Yes. To, to be able of to course. see the other side and all yes. that, too. So it's one thing, right? Because they'll be yes. able to get all of that. So I think cops must have just more empathy than any anyone else. And you have to be able to, to manage that. Yeah. Yes. it's. I mean, people like me, my wife's case, where you went through traumatic events growing up in life, you do see the other side of the coin. Okay, not everybody comes from a picture-perfect family background. Not everybody comes from a well-educated background. But just because I did not complete college does not mean that I cannot handle certain situations being in the capacity of a police officer. Because, like anything, there's no textbook 
that you can read and is going to perform the same results with every single person, with every single situation. Mm -hmm. Everybody's going to handle situations differently. And I guess through the whole process of screening, through the physical part, the mental part, that's how they try to, I guess, rule through the, the list of candidates and at that point try to pick the best ones that they feel are capable of doing the job. And until you've gone through those stressful situations, there's really not a textbook question or answer that can address that specifically. Yeah. And then as cops, you have to digest what happened. You're always second-guessing yourself as to whether you did something if, if you did it a different way. But unfortunately, sometimes you're giving split seconds to make a decision that affects you and other people for the rest of their lives. Yeah. Oh, so it, if they it, can help along the process to basically weed out, for lack of a better word, of people that are not eligible, that they feel cannot handle those situations, then that's part of the process. And not everybody that wants to be a cop becomes a cop. Right. Oh, right. Yeah. Because once they get kind of the information of really what this is, or if they have the mental stamina, it's one thing to have the mental stamina, but then to know that it's going to be tested every minute <laughs> that, it, that you're at work or not at work, I imagine, Correct. like you said, because you're going to be at home thinking, oh, if I would have done this differently, yeah. how would that have ended up? Even if the outcome is okay, you probably still always second guess Oh, of guessing, course, right? because, you know, it's, it's traumatic. And um, they do have counselors, like if you do get involved in something, and um, I mean, not to get off subject or anything, it's just, and my husband is here, and he can tell you, I personally have worked with two dozen cops that were killed in the line of duty. Oh, wow. Like, worked with them, knew yes. them, was friends with them. And I cannot begin to tell you there's not a day that doesn't go by in my life wow. that I don't think about them or their families. It's something that will stay with you forever. You don't have to be married to them. You don't have to be a parent to them. You don't have to be a child of theirs. Working together and knowing them every day, that is your family. So it has a great impact, and it will be, it will be with me for the rest of my life. Yeah, that, that really brings it home, me too, when you talk about that, just in a sheer number. I mean, I think about the people who are close to me who I've lost. It's not anywhere close to that, not, not anywhere close to that. And then you have the ripple effect, like you said, with the family and all that. So, yeah, that's... Which is another part of the job, which is probably why they're being so careful in in the screening and knowing what it is that you're going to be able to handle. Okay, so let's talk more about the so the training happens. Yes. So um, <laughs> I'm just imagining this bag, you know, this big bag, and you, this little person. I mean, if no, people can't see you because we're on the My podcast, black and blue but <laughs> <laughs> you're a tiny person. But I imagine very strong, right? So we do that, um, and then and then what happens? How do they decide? where you're going to be stationed, what kind of a cop you're going to be, because there's various, are there different degrees or yes. levels? Or, so yes. let's talk a little bit about that. Because I really have, I mean, I'm completely in the dark about anything having to do with this. So okay. it's as though I'm a three-year-old. Explain That's okay. That. Listen, not everybody knows, you know, and it's a different era and a different time now. Back then, there was three different departments. It was the transit police. Um, it was the housing police and the city police. I actually, when I took one of the separate tasks for transit, I did get called for the transit police. And I wasn't really happy. I wanted to be a city cop. But okay. I said to myself, you know what? You need to get out of where you are. It's a job. You can always take the test again, and you can fall back into one of the other departments, which I did. So when I originally was Is any one of them more prestigious? Are you? Okay. So there's – go ahead. The – 
the way they worked, it was transit was the top of the list, housing was the top of the list, who scored the highest, and then the ones that were left behind would be NYPD. But Which is still a super significant screening process and everything. It's not like, oh, well, I didn't make it, so I'm a New York City Correct, officer. correct. But right. it was everyone's dream to be a New York City police officer. Yeah, absolutely. You know, and um, I was not... I was not disappointed because I always knew at that young age there were several tests that I could take, which I did. And I came. I was a transit cop. Um, then it was a housing cop. And that's How long were you a transit cop before you became a housing very cop? Very little. Very little. A oh, couple of because months. Because you wanted to move. Well, what happened was that I had to drop out and take care of my dad because he kind of got sick. Okay. And then um, I came right back into the next class, and I was a housing cop. And I says, you know what? Who cares at this point? It's a job. I'm a housing cop. I'm doing almost everything the city police is doing. I was going to say, what do you do as a housing? Because transit cop is working on the subways and the all kinds of stuff, the buses, everything. Yeah. Right? It's a big job. Um, so what about the... So with the housing police is very low income housing and um, there's a lot of people in some build there's a lot of housing projects and I worked in Brooklyn North which was one of the worst areas at that time which covered the seven three precinct the seven five precinct which my husband originally started in which was number one in homicides and that was during the crack epidemic um, so. Uh, for me to go in there, um, it was only like maybe a half hour from where I grew up. So I had been in the neighborhood before, and I remember saying as a kid, oh, my God, I don't ever want to work here or come through here yeah. again. Um, but when I became a cop, and like I had stated earlier, I saw how people that um, were low income really lived and how poverty really affected people's lives and drugs and I said to myself wow this is you know I was fortunate you know um these people you know I'm not saying that they were not fortunate because they made themselves who they wanted to make themselves they could have went to college they could have become a police officer but maybe they didn't have somebody that can mentor them yeah you know or maybe they didn't have people to show them the right way maybe they thought and you know i'm not taking anything away from anybody maybe their right way uh was learning from their parents so if their parents are doing things that they shouldn't be doing that is what the child is going to grow up um thinking is proper and um unfortunately there's not enough people at that time to say hey listen especially with the housing police we didn't have that many cops where you could say hey listen you know maybe you should do this or maybe you should do that you know and you know but also people as police officers don't want to put other people down for the way they live right you never know what's the choice and what's uh, who knows exactly exactly and um i learned a lot i learned a lot from people and um you know you know i learned about what was your actual job though as a was is your job to keep the peace is your job to enforce is your job what what is your job there? my job as a housing police officer at that time was mostly foot posts and i can't begin to tell you i'd have a midnight foot post which is one single little girl like me in a project with about 50 buildings okay that might have had 150 200,000 tenants and they put you out there by yourself with no radio so could you imagine what was going through my mind as a 20 year old 21 year old you know yeah but with no radio so how are you supposed to tell what's going what are you supposed to be doing every hour they had buildings where you would go and make a ring you would and a ring is where you would call the station house and say hey I'm okay I'm okay you know I'm just checking up just letting you know I'm okay if a job came over and you didn't have a radio you would just be guided 
guided by the lights. Well, you would just be guided by the wow. gunshots. Okay, it's very different now. Yeah. <laughs> right? You'd be yeah. guided by the gunshots. You'd yeah. be guided by the commotion. So, I mean, it's very like, this is a side that people don't really know. And um, if I told you I wasn't scared, I'd be lying to you, you know. And um, But I went out Were there. you like scared out of your boots, though? I mean, I would I would be really, because you're just in a such a different neighborhood. It's Yes, you're doing your job, but you don't know anyone. You don't really have, I don't maybe you've made some friends. I don't know, but maybe just, <laughs> you don't really have anyone there that you can trust or rely on because you're in a different position as a cop, right? Correct. I think, um, I think my biggest fear was not being shot or killed or being hurt. I think my biggest fear was being I hate to say it sexually assaulted yeah that was my big fear yeah. I mean it's not like it's and that's a real that's real yeah. you know and it's not that it's ever been unheard of um you know that is not something I signed up for right yes I know when I signed up to be a police officer that I could be killed in the line of duty I could be assaulted I could be you know hurt or maimed or whatever I knew that taking the job so I think my biggest fear was not being by myself. I think the biggest fear was having someone attack me and sexually assault me. Mm-hmm. And that was a big thing back then. People, yeah. it didn't matter. People were being sexually assaulted yeah. no matter who they we're were. We're the same vintage, so I know exactly. Exactly. Yeah, I was in New York City in the 80s and all that, so yep. I understand. Yeah. And my and, husband and Bob was a cop during the, that the era. The one thing with being a housing police officer is that once you had a situation that was the only places pretty much where if an officer was making an arrest and the person resisted and that caused a commotion, literally you could have thousands of people down into that project courtyard in a matter of less than a minute. Oh, yeah. Because there was so many people living in such small confined area. And like she, my wife had said is that some of them are all different economic backgrounds. And unfortunately, the people there that were for lack of a better word, trapped, meaning that this is where they have to live. Right. And seeing the other people in other apartments dealing drugs, dealing guns, whether it's domestic situations or anything along those lines, it was just so many people so close together. And once something happened, everybody came out to see what was going on. And unfortunately, if you did make an arrest there, you would have people that were the bad elements in the, in the projects themselves that would throw bowling balls off rooftops, refrigerators off rooftops. Wow. Uh, you'd pull up in the police car. They would throw objects at the police car. They would shoot at the police as you drove through the projects. Or they'd make you chase them up to the roof. They'd have pit bulls up there. They would feed them gunpowder, and they would make the police chase you up to the roof, and they would jump across another roof, and when you would open that door, you'd get attacked by a pit bull. Wow. I mean, we've had it where the yeah. drug dealers, the pit Except bulls. I couldn't even imagine. I couldn't even write. I couldn't think about that. <laughs> no, right? I mean, the pit bulls, unfortunately, were used in a very bad way where they would remove their vocal cords awful, for the yeah. dogs so the mm-hmm. dogs wouldn't bark. You would be up on a rooftop looking for somebody, and you'd get attacked by a pit bull that had no barking ability, so you wouldn't hear them until they're pounding, and then they're right on top of you. Mm -hmm. And now you have to defend yourself against that. But with being the housing police officers, that you do have a majority of people in those projects that do like you. And if they saw somebody agitating the situation, they would turn around and call the police for you. They would dial 911. Uh, when you would get there in the daylight hours, because let's face it, the drug dealers, they would do their business not right in front where the police were, but off to the side. But the older folks and the good people in the, in the yes. community and the projects, they would come over and talk to you. And you do develop a rapport with them. And at that point, they're the people that you would need 
rely on when a situation's getting out of hand. If you didn't have a radio because they didn't have that much of the equipment to pass out to all the cops that were there, that person would call up 911. And that person would always look out for the officers there. And like my wife was saying is that sometimes you'd go out there and there would be, say, 50 cops, but you only have 30 radios. So you would go out without the radio, but you would have a plan where, okay, I'll call up every hour. But that, unfortunately, if you're getting involved in a confrontation with somebody, you would rely on the people that you helped during the daylight hours to actually at least call 911 to say, yes, there's an officer here, they may need help. And then they would send officers there and correct whatever the situation was at that point. But also at the same aspect, being a housing cop, you would cover 14, 15 precincts. You might cover 25 square miles. So there's three different bands. And what I mean by bands is you're on three different radio divisions. So if someone is in the 8-1 precinct and they're not on the 7-3 or the 7-5 frequency, you don't know what's going on there. So you would have to switch. And sometimes being a housing cop, because we were so small our department, you may turn out two cars to cover all that area. Sometimes you turn out one car, you know, and then the city police would have to pick up the slack. And sometimes there was animosity. And my my husband was a city cop the at that time. Yeah, there yeah. was animosity. And, um, you know, but, uh, you know, this is the job that I chose. And yes, I have been injured on the job, but I stood my ground. And I wasn't going to let anybody, you know, listen, if I got to get hurt, I hate to say it, but years ago, if I got to get hurt, you got you got to get mm-hmm. hurt. You know, and um, it's not my intention, but I'm not going to let anybody go out there and physically hurt me or you want to mentally say whatever you want. That's fine. But once you put your hands on me or another officer, that's a whole different story. Um, You know, we're here to protect you. We didn't get up in the morning and say, hey, you know what? I'm going to go to work today and I'm going to beat somebody up because I'm mad at my wife Mm -hmm. or I'm mad at somebody. But that's what the general public thought then. And that's what they think now. And that's absolutely the furthest thing from the truth. I think that is kind of true. I think think we, I'll put myself in there, would kind of think if I, and you're helping a lot, even just talking about the level of training that goes into this and the level of screening. You know, because because we're thinking like, oh, that there are some mean cops. So let's just say oh, it. Like, I there agree. are some that you think yeah. and maybe that's well, you know, it takes one bad apple to ruin the whole bunch. Right. Correct. So you just feel like if you've had that experience that maybe you, you get to extrapolate it. But um, but maybe we are thinking that, oh, it's hard not to bring that into work. And the job is so stressful it is. as it is. And then how can you how can any one person possibly maintain their composure day after day after day? Exactly. Right? Listen, we're human beings. And yeah. if any cop told you that they didn't have any stress or they didn't you know think about uh, being angry when they went to work because they didn't get a work assignment that they deserved and somebody else that really didn't deserve it got it you know what we're humans people have stress and if anyone like I said told you they didn't especially a cop they'd be fooling you you know if a cop told you that they weren't afraid to go out on the street and have thoughts back then about not getting into a shooting we're talking about back then you know what? That happens every single day. Every single day. I was there for the Crown Heights riots. How do you how do you deal with that mentally? How do you how do you do they train you? Do they help you with that or how do you, do they just get people in who are equipped to deal with that? Because if that's my thought every day, I I need support. Well, I'm going <laughs> to tell you the police department may not like it, but this is my experience and my truth, okay? And um, you know, listen, it catches up to you and They say that they have help for you out there. Um, They don't because when I had some issues with some stuff, you know, um, 
you know, just from dealing with all my friends getting killed in the line of duty and other stuff, seeing children, you know, I, I think about these children every day for the rest of my life that I've seen killed or whatever. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, yeah, it does affect you. And when you go to the job for help, they turn around and they say that they're there for you. No, they try to break it down and make you sound like you're crazy. So they could say, you know what, you have mental issues, and we're going to get rid of you. You know, so you're better off getting help outside the job. Do you think it's still like that in yes. today's environment? 100%. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. Because the expectation is that we brought you in, you can handle this. And I think Correct. that's pervasive across humanity is changing now. I mean, humanity is getting much softer in our ability to relate, understanding wholeness and oneness, and that everyone has, you know, issues and problems to go through. And when you're asking someone to consistently put themselves in that kind of an emotional position, yep, and, you know, it, and not be emotional about it, correct, you know, but then you want them to be empathetic and all those things. It's yep. just, it's well, antithetical. With this, with this job that we're in, Okay, we have adrenaline that goes from zero to 100 within a radio call. And what the radio call is is the 911 call that says there's a man with a gun. They give us a description. We arrive on the scene. There's two or three people standing together. One of them matches the description. We get out. We have our guns drawn because reaction time is always slower than action time. Just want to interject. That was back in time, not today's era. No, this was back when we were younger I'd say back in the, in the 80s. late 80s, early 90s, when crack was, yeah. unfortunately, crack was king. Yep. Uh, and we would go there. We would get information on our radios. We would go to the scene. There would be a person there matching the description. We would sit there, get out of the car. We've had our weapons drawn because, listen, it's always reaction time is slower than action time. Mm-hmm, of course. So if I'm pulling out and I have my gun out already, whatever position it is, whether it's aimed at the suspect or down on the ground and is safe and ready, Whatever it is, if that person sees police coming there, they're either going to do one of two things. If they're a law-abiding citizen, they're going to stop and say, okay, put your hands up. They're going to comply with what we ask them to do. Once that is done and they're deemed not a threat, we explain to them why we did this. Okay, If they're not happy with it, I'm sorry, but somebody told us a description, told us that you had a weapon. We need to go there for the safety of everybody, our safety, the people standing next to this person. Everyone's safety, they need to get thoroughly checked. And that's how and we were trained. that point, that was our training. Yeah. Our training was that we are the, you know, first off, we are a police officer in uniform. If people challenge us in uniform, then what will they do to the regular Joe civilian? Correct. Okay? And at that point, we would identify what we were there for. And at that point, the person would either be, okay, thank you very much. I understand why you did this. Or the other person would be agitated that we actually did that to them. We apologize, explain why we were there, and move on. And we do stop question and frisk, yeah, something we would that perform, we are not allowed to do in today's society. Yeah. Mm. We and would, that is a big problem. Yeah, and we would do that paperwork so that they do have a transaction of us interacting with other people. Uh, today's day and age, unfortunately, everybody has a cell phone camera. Somebody could be laying there bleeding. Instead of rendering aid, they take out their cameras and they start videotaping everything. Yeah. Yeah. Not, it doesn't have to be any interactions with the police. It could be a car accident. It could be somebody yelling at somebody. But now when you get people that come there and agitate the situation, that's the point where, like you said, you're going through enough stress dealing with the Correct. Uh, the situation that you're there for. Now you have outside agitators, whether they're saying things, videotaping it, trying to interact because they know that person that you're trying to resolve an issue with. And then at that point in time, like we said, as far as the training level, 
you go back to saying if you are trained and you can handle certain situations, that's great. You will have somewhat of a positive outcome the best that it can under that situation. People may not like the results at the end. We may not like the results at the end. But the end of the situation is it's over, it's complied, hopefully nobody got hurt. And at that right. point in time, we live and we learn from our experiences. With my wife's case, where she said she was in the projects, you had a lot of bad people, you had a lot of good people there. Yes, we did. The yes. good people would always have your best interest in mind. And, and they have us, had. Us they the have same. had. But that gives you the sense of, I'm doing my right, the job right. People like me, they need me, I'm here, I'm inter interacting with them in a positive way. And tomorrow, if it's not such a positive way, at least they know me ahead of time. I'm not just the cop pulling up on the scene, getting out of a police car, dealing with the situation, and if you felt that I was unjust with, with the way that I dealt with it, that's one thing. But these people that would interact with us, they know me ahead Correct. of time. They know that the day before, I wasn't a strict, ace, straight-by-the-book person. And it helps. And it helps you as a person deal with the stress levels of going from a very stressful situation, and then it's a non-stressful. So we have to, for lack of a better thing, kind of talk ourselves down. Correct. And that's a lot of training and stressful that people go through to get to that end result. And I was very happy at some times when I had like maybe two years, three years on the job. Some people that I did yes, grow up with, that. Mm -hmm. they ended up moving to the projects. So people that I grew up with that were adults now lived where I worked. And it was great to see them because it's like I didn't think of them as being low income or beneath me. It was just nice to see that, you know what, not everybody um, can stay above board. You know, maybe sometimes people fall on hard times, but doesn't make you a bad person. They still got up every day and they still went to work. They didn't sit in their homes like some people deal drugs or run a prostitution ring or sit there and say, you know, I'm going to like commit a crime today. You know what? That's what we had to deal with back then. And I had the utmost respect for everybody because everybody has different cer certain situations and circumstances that, hey, this is the cards that were dealt and this is what I have to do. But when you do have the means to say, hey, I don't like the way I'm living and I got to change myself. Well, you're the only one that can do it. You know, yeah, absolutely. For sure. Well, and you're proof of that right, right yeah. here. I'd like to think that. Yeah, and that's actually what I was getting to because I'm thinking if you're by yourself, and I don't know how it is today, so maybe we can figure that out. But um, if you're by yourself, if if you have a community, which it sounds like in that case you do have a little bit of community support as well, because it's it's like having your family or your old friends, you know, who've known you for so long, and you go into these instances, and they're like, well, that's not Chris. That's not the Chris I know, or right. something like that. It's just very encouraging. It's reassuring. So that that's all great at least there's that um okay so now we have moved from um a transit cop for a minute like not even like talk about that okay so that's over <laughs> and now a housing cop yep for how long uh i was a housing cop from 1986 and then they merged us in uh 1995 with the city police oh so t almost 10 years nine years right yep. almost 10 years yep okay so that when they merged you is that do you become a city cop Yep, or, we all became one. They got rid of the housing and transit police and made us one big police so force. So everyone now is yes. a New York City cop in yes. the mid-90s? Yes. Okay, and then what happens from there? Now what's your situation? Well, I was already in 1993 is when I went into emergency service. Um, it's something that... In, uh, that oh, wait, so you'd already transitioned 
into yes okay uh, how to tell us about the transition okay so transit authority already had their emergency rescue service and nypd big blue had their elite e-issue which is emergency service uh the housing police we didn't have that our emergency service was the maintenance guys in the projects so somebody came up with an idea and said hey why don't we have our own emergency service that is something i always wanted to be since i was a little child how'd you even know what that was because i used to see them come to my neighborhood when they had sometimes um emotionally disturbed persons and they'd call them in and i was like they'd have the big trucks yeah. and they'd oh, have yeah. the, the helmets and the flap jackets and you know or if they were searching for somebody that might have had um a child who might have had um an emotional issue or a medical issue they would send those guys in after the initial guys on patrol did the search or the canvas so i was very intrigued by that you know because that's not something you see every day no and i was like wow i want to do that you know and then uh, you know it's not I, I think a lot of people don't see that in their whole lifetime yeah and it's not like it was swat on uh, tv you right. know i'd watch that on tv as a kid and i'm like but they don't you know i don't really know if we had that until I actually saw it. So in 1993, I was still a housing cop, and then they developed this new program, and I put in an application, and I was very well liked, and I did my job, and did my arrest, and had an impeccable racket, and I was the first female to get interviewed for that, and I was the first female to get chosen for that. Wow. And uh, after That's they chose... Cool. Yeah! That's I was, really you know, cool. I was so excited. I remember coming home telling my husband, you know, and my husband, he was very truthful, though. He says, you know, some guys might not not want women in there you know they may make it rough for you because it was rough enough because a lot of men back then did not really want women on the police force and a did lot it help you that you were married to another cop at that at time uh, well at that time i was married i married my husband in 92 but okay. prior to that no i there was a lot of guys that didn't want to work with me yeah i would think so you know because they thought i was too small i couldn't handle the job until i had to prove myself yeah. you know and um i really didn't care what they thought you know if i thought i couldn't do the job then i would leave mm -hmm. but i knew that i was capable so 93 i went into um the emergency service unit um which was housing at the time and uh, went through the training it was a rigorous training um how is it different well with the training from a regular patrol officer to emergency service is you have to well at that time we became emts um we were taught how to repel full emts like certified full certified okay. emts we were taught how to do repelling from helicopters buildings water towers um like a green beret or something yeah really i mean like right isn't <laughs> yeah. that like an army paratrooper <laughs> but it was cool because we very were cops, cool you know and um i walked the first bridge i did was i walked up the brooklyn bridge the most famous brooklyn bridge and that was the highlight of my career how'd you get up there you how'd you get up there well they were training us and i was you know they added two other females after me and i was the first female that volunteered for that and the um, transit did, police. Did anyone else? Or was this just <laughs> I wouldn't have volunteered for that. They would have had, they would have had to like hold a candle on my hand for the, my entire life for, to get me to do that. I hear you. Well, the transit police were training the housing police, not the city police. They didn't train us. And um, it's something you had to do. And I tell you, um, I don't... Oh, so it wasn't an optional volunteer. It's just that you were the first you to go. You had to. Ever yep. had to. And I think that some of the people that were in the unit, and I think my husband would agree, um, once they found out that they had to climb up that bridge and they had to do certain things. How they, high is that bridge? 
It's such a, it's huge. It is. The Verrazano's even higher. Yeah. Oh yeah. <laughs> These are not big bridges. They connect really big expanses of space. Yeah. yeah, they are very big. And um when they found out that they had to do it, everybody had to do it. A lot of people dropped out of the unit. I went up there and I did it twice and I have it on video and that was the highlight of my career because I made it. I set my goal and I was able to achieve my goal. If housing never had an emergency service at that time, I probably would have just stayed with the housing police department, which we didn't have many areas like NYPD does. And I probably would have been stuck doing really nothing, just either patrol or being a detective because there wasn't that many units. I see. So that when, when they opened that opportunity with the housing police, it opened a whole new world and a whole new door for me. And um, when they merged us into NYPD, all three departments, at that time my husband had left in 1994 and he went to another department. Um, Wait, left which department? NYPD. And oh. he went, yeah, he left NYPD and he went to another police department, which... Uh, was Nassau County PD. Oh, okay. That was in the... Okay. Yeah, so he was hired in 87. He did seven years there. He left in 1994. He worked in Brooklyn North in the 7-5, which was right down the block from me. Got great experience. Is that how you met? That's how we met. Okay. I love it. (laughs) That's how we met, and we got married in 92. And, um, you know, he moved on, and I decided to stay. I had the opportunity to leave, but I was so happy doing what I was doing. And I think the reason why I stayed when I did have another opportunity is because I was brought up in the city. And this is where I learned. And I learned from other people and other cultures and other things, something the suburbs don't have. And, you know, I learned about... um, you know, like people's cultures, people's lifestyles. I learned what it was like, and I and I don't want to sound cold-hearted, but to sit there and see someone dead, okay, that was murdered. I mean, that's something you see on TV. Mm-hmm. You know, uh, to a normal person, it would be horrific. But me being a police officer, it was horrific. But I had to be stoic because I had a job to do. I wasn't cold-hearted or anything, but sometimes people perceive us that way because we are guarding that body at a crime scene, and we have a job to do, and people don't realize that this is our job. We think about the families because, you know what, that could be me lying there as a cop. It's probably really hard to do that job in the space of that. It is, and what a lot of people don't understand, it's like whether whether you're a decent human being or a non-decent human being, that's how society classifies people. It's still someone's life that was taken. Mm -hmm. I mean, you know, and my husband could tell you that right before he left when he was a city cop, he was actually about 20 feet away from a guy that was a cop-involved shooting and a police officer told Bobby to get out of the way. The guy turned around, fired at him, and the police officer shot him. So my husband was actually there when he saw the guy get shot. It's it's one of the ones where, like you said, as far as empathy with people. In our line of work, unfortunately, we're the only people that say, okay, today I may not be coming home today. It's It's a perception that comes with the job. And when people turn around and say, oh, well, a cop got killed. Well, what do you expect? That was his job. It's not my job. My job is not to go out there, or my wife's job is not to go out there and get killed. It's to help people, number one, and to, two, help people by, unfortunately, taking down people that are willing to do harm to other people. And it's one of the ones where, for us, whether we have our own self-defense mechanisms or our own way of coping with stressful situations. Like my wife said, you go to a scene, there's dead people there. You have family members on the other side of the door 
that want to get in, that want to see their loved ones. They think of us as just cold-hearted people. No. First off, we have to maintain the integrity of the scene to prosecute the person who did it, and this way all of it will get documented the correct way, and you'll have a successful conviction at the end of the day. They don't understand that we can't let them in to say goodbye to their loved ones because of that situation. Um, They'll turn around, they'll look at us, they'll think that we're cold-hearted. We don't care about people. It's not true. That is absolutely wrong. That is the farthest from the truth. We do care about it. We don't want the person who did this to unfortunately get off on a technicality where you didn't have a search warrant or, or we didn't have the right to do this or to do that. There's a lot of processing that goes in through a whole scene, an arrest, and conviction, ultimately. Um, so for us, whether we're seen cold-hearted at certain situations or not, we know that a job needs to be done. We do that. Now, when we get off of work and we go home, if there's anybody that thinks that that doesn't bother them in the long run, they're... They're crazy. They're, they're, they're not telling <laughs> the truth. Right. Because it's a lot to process. Because, number one, we have to actually handle the person who was killed whether it's a, a gunshot victim, a suicide, physically, physically mm-hmm. get hands-on, yeah. okay? And that's a tough thing mm-hmm. for a person who has never a cop before. Correct. I mean, every single cop, no matter where you are, will always tell you their Correct. first unfortunate DOA, mm-hmm. whether it was through a crime, a criminal act, or a self-inflicted act, or just natural causes. But everybody will remember that. And it's something that when we process this all, we all have to take it in, and we all find avenues to direct it Correct. so that at least we can survive mentally to keep doing the job and like my wife had said before as far as is there outside sources that help you yes unfortunately they're the cop that you work next to that you want to go out and hang out socially with you all kind of shoot the breeze but it's us getting it out of our system it's Mm -hmm. us ventilating by talking about the experience whether we're joking around unfortunately in our line of work, sometimes we do do that. Mm-hmm. It doesn't mean that we don't No, it's care. a cathartic release, it's, yeah. It's one of the ones that we do to help it all process our own individual person to maintain that job that we do. But also, there's a lot of stigmatism where officers do have problems, and they don't want to say anything. And unfortunately, there's a lot of cop suicides, you know, and... It's, it's terrible because there is help out there, you know. There's nothing to be ashamed of, you know, but the job stigmatizes you. If you go and get help, they take away, they remove your firearm, they remove your shield, oh, they take you off the street. And then they have their own psychologists there that try to see if you're making a story up to get out on a half pension, which is nothing. Right. And, you know, they sit there and sometimes, and I'm going to be very honest, they mock you. They think you're playing a game. You know, that's nothing to mock somebody. Mental illness, regardless of what it is, that's not something you play with. Well, especially where it's in that acute trauma phase that can last a year or two years, right? Everyone, uh, This is documented. I'm not making this up. No, <laughs> you know, this is research, right? So that in that acute time frame, it, it's real what, what yes. people experience. And the officers suffer because sometimes they don't want to say anything because other officers perceive them as, oh, well, maybe he has mental issues. Right. Or I could, I could handle this. Why can't right. she? Or exactly. why can't he? Or, you know, I Correct. was at the same scene. What are you talking about? Correct. Like that kind of thing. And Correct. it's like, well, maybe you're at the same scene, but 
this person was at that scene and three more that week and five more that, that I, who knows? Correct. You just Correct. don't know. You know, and, uh, you know, it, it's just unfortunate that things happen that way. And, um, you know, like I said, I'm very fortunate to be married to my husband who was a police officer at that time. He just recently retired. We were able to, you know, come home at the end of the night and talk Debrief. about things. You know, um, there are also a lot of cop divorces because sometimes the other, whether it be male or female, Sometimes you're gone for days on a case or whatever it is, and you miss a lot of holidays, and you miss a lot of family time. And, you know, when you come home from that, you just want to sleep and relax and unwind. And sometimes their loved ones don't understand that, and, you know, it causes a lot of problems. I can see being a spouse that it would be tremendously... I know... uh just any of us who's married, whatever whatever your marital situation is, you know, if you have a spouse who's particularly busy or has a demanding job, and in this case, it would be a very demanding job, and it's hard when you're on the other side of that, you know, either home with the kids or with other family obligations, yes. you probably have very distinct lives, you know, coming and going. Yeah, it, it, and sometimes it gets hectic, but you know what? You have to do it, you know, and, uh, you know, we did it the best we could, and, um, you know... Uh, we- Were your schedules the same? Let's just talk brass tacks, so- so did you, how did that work? So, okay, because because now you're in crazy town, let me just call it that, and you're like, not chilling, but you have like a nice, yeah. I mean, like our, reasonable cop job. Yes. I think any cop job is incredibly difficult, right? But yes. you have a reasonable job. Yes. Yeah. Our, our schedule Once at first time when we were married <laughs> <I would> just... <laughs> is that I went from being employed with the city for eight or nine years. I left there. Were you I from the to, city? No, I was born and bred in Long Island. New okay, York, so that's why I get, I get. Um, so when I went to the different department, um, I'm the new person now. So now that meant number one, basically all the holidays I'm working. Yes. Whatever schedule scheduling issues, I was low man on the totem pole. So at first, it ended up where when I was assigned to a precinct, and my wife was still working her hours, I would work the daytime, she would work the nighttime. So we would always see each other in passing. Um, We wouldn't have the same day off for, I would say, literally one night a month where I was off and she was off. Otherwise, it would be I would be coming home and she'd be going to work and and vice versa. Oh, wow. So it was trying on that point. But like anything. But you'd be married for over 10 years by that point. Oh, at that point when he left, we got married in 92. He left in 94. Oh, so it's it's a new marriage. Yeah. Yeah. So it was one, but we knew what to expect. The other party knew exactly what the other party was going through because we're both in that same area. So we, we understood that. That's why cops and nurses, cops yes. and teachers, yeah. they, you know, significantly, that's <laughs> what it is. Mm-hmm. And when we that's started dating, actually. Yeah. And, and when we started dating and got married, everyone was like saying, "Oh no, you guys aren't going to last," you know, because you're two cops there. It's, it's never going to last. Cops' marriages never work out when they marry to each other, you know. And it's like anything; you get out of it what you put into it. And every, the other party knows exactly what you go through with the stresses, the highs, the lows. And there's days when I come home and I was kind of short-tempered or something. No. She would know. I don't believe that at all. And she would do (laughs) the same with that. But the other party would say, okay, you need to unwind. You know, and leave you alone. And you come back an hour later and you'd be like, okay, what's going on? Right. And you would would just kind of get yourself in check in a way. And some people can do that. Other people cannot. And that's where the issues come into play. And that's where there's family events, social events, and your work schedule. So you would be missing Christmas dinners, New Year's Eve gatherings. 
your friends wouldn't understand that. Well, why can't you just put in for the day off? Can't well, go to their weddings. Work that you way can't because go to a lot of stuff. Okay, this yeah. is a good. Like, we just, almost couldn't go to all weddings, all right? Yeah, <laughs> no, I mean, for there, real. There was, there was for a real. Police, there was a I imagine. Situation. I don't even know how you get, even managed to get married. Washington Heights, right? by the JLP on, the, on your lunch break. Oh. How do you think we felt when they turned around and told us, "Well, half your wedding, which is cops." Are going to have to go to the Washington Heights riots. We were like, "What?" Yeah. Oh, yeah, so you really? Yeah. yeah, it's a different. It's a different life. This is why I think this is so interesting to think about because when people are thinking about careers, I think a lot of people would be interested in being a police officer. Of it's a, a very noble profession, and like you said, if you're someone who can um, empathize, and then you have the physical strength. There's a lot of just you're outside. There's yeah. a lot of really cool things about it. What I'm getting from this conversation, yes. though, is how much discipline is involved for you personally um, to do this job. Like, yeah. It's incredible amount of discipline. If you're going to do it well, I mean, if you're going to yeah. go off, you know, and become corrupt or whatever, that's something else. But, yeah. but if you're really going to do this job well, what's really coming through for me in, in our conversation is discipline. It's the one word I would use and to I have describe to this, this conversation. Day. Discipline. You're, you hit it right on the head. You have to be very disciplined. And it just doesn't leave when you leave the job. You know, I'm very disciplined and organized in in my personal life. And if I have an obligation to someone, I treat it just like as if I had an obligation at work. And I wouldn't change it for the world. You know, I'm very glad that that I was fortunate enough, as tiny as I was, to go into a man's world and achieve my goal and prove to myself that I should not be judging myself like a book because I was tiny or I was a girl or I thought I couldn't handle it because I didn't have a high school diploma or whatever my negativities were that I kind of blocked out and other people foresaw as, oh, you're never going to make it in life. Well, I did. And I'm very proud of that. And I'm married. My husband was still married and we made it work, right. you know, and um, I'm very proud of my career and um, I wouldn't have traded it for the world, you know, and if my family didn't like it or nobody liked it, well, then you got to go because this is my life. Right. And that's a different, that's their choice. Exactly. Over there. Exactly. Yeah. And um, I have made a big impact in some people's lives that may have had some kind of drinking issues on the job where I would take them aside and say, hey, listen, you know, maybe you should get help. Maybe you drink a little too much. Maybe I played mommy at 20-something years mm -hmm. old. But when they contacted me on Facebook, you know, 25 years later, and they told me if it wasn't for you, Stacy, I would not be here married with children. You saved my life. You have no idea how good that made me feel to know even though I knew I was doing my job as a police officer and helping other people but to be able to hear a male officer tell me years later that made it the best feeling in the world knowing that I helped somebody who perceived me as being oh you're a female you're not going to be able to you know you can't handle the job or whatever but to reach out and tell me now not then right you know um I was very proud of myself and that's something that I thought I never um what I could be um, in my life. Even though I knew I was proud of myself, I just thought and I felt at that point that, you know what, I now realize I did make changes in people's lives, you know, and um, the choices I made. Some may have been bad, but most of them were good. And um, like I said, um, I was very proud of what I did. 
And um, well, I, and those people keep making positive changes. So when you make one, what you think of as a small change, yeah. or you know, someone is able to be impacted by your words or your life or the way that you live, and yeah. then you're able to see that. I mean, you're even mentioning children and that kind of thing, right? We yeah. think about it even generational impact. Of it's course. tremendous, of course. And it's great to hear some female officers say to me, you know, stay. We heard a lot of stories about you. We never met you, and you know, you were my role model. These are people that never even met me, and when I heard that, I can't begin to tell you how good I felt. And when I came home and I told my husband, I cried. And those were, were tears of, wow, I made an impact on someone that doesn't even know me. And it was just through a third-party story. And through, then, like, achievement and, yes. right, the way that you're yes. doing your job and living your life. Yes. Yeah. and they wanted to be like me. And I was like, wow, somebody wants to be like me, you know? Wow. Which, now. if you think about it, it's really what you set out to do from the beginning, right? Because you were emulating the other the other police women, men, whoever was working, probably mostly policemen at that time, right? You're emulating them. They're having an impact on you. Then you turn around however many years later, and then you're doing paying it forward again. It's like a, it's a really great system. It's a a great story, (laughs) really. Okay. So I want to get back to, I I think I left you on top of the Verrazano. uh, The Brooklyn. The Brooklyn Bridge. (laughs) Okay. On top of the Brooklyn Bridge. So that's training. Yes. What else is training? And have you ever had to do something like that for real? Yes. Okay. So let's talk about both of those things. What more training do you have that's kind of out of the ordinary? Because I don't think of rappelling and, you know, climbing on top of bridges is as part of traditional police training. But again, I'm, you know, inexperienced in this area. Um, How much of that is training? And then what is... What real. is like, yeah, what's a real life event that you're finding yourself in? Well, real life events are mostly like um, searching for like criminals that like, um, you know, would be where, for instance, and I've been retired, but like in the last few years, there's been a lot of terroristic acts, okay, or um, just nutty drivers going out of control, running people over, you know, that's something that, yes, the average street cop handles, but for somebody like emergency service, we go in there and we secure the perimeter more so than the 200 or the 500 feet, you know, frozen zone. And we go in there and we actually search for these people or um, like. Did you ever find one? Oh, of course. Oh of, my course. Gosh. of course. Of course. <laughs> it's one thing to be on search, right? But of then it's course. the other thing to actually find them because now you have yeah. to do something. Oh, yeah. Well, you find them and, you know, you know, you handcuff them. You go in, you get the subject out. And then, you know, the people that um, are on patrol, those are the ones that would take them in or the detective that's handling it and they would process it. So our job would just be to go in, contain the situation, Physically. do the search, okay. go in, get what we're looking for. If we do find the people we're looking for, take that person out, take control of the scene. Here you go, patrol, or here you go to the detectives. How often is that scene ending badly and how often is it ending civilly? Um, I would think that most of them would end civilly. Okay. Yeah. So you don't have to be prepared consistently for... Well, you always have to be prepared and you always have to be on your guard for the worst okay. because that's training and that's what we're there for. So if somebody's calling us in there, that is our job to be prepared for, well, the street cop is calling us for help. So, you know, this is real. This is something where we have to go in and we really have to pay attention. We really have to do our job as trained and... You know, this is not TV. We have to go in and get the bad guy. And, you know, hopefully it's a success. If it's not a success, well, then the detectives handle it from there. And there's other units that will handle it to try to find the perpetrators. 
So on your first one, the first time you went out with the ESU, mm-hmm. was your heart pounding? Of course. And then the how many times did you go out before your heart stopped pounding? Just always. pounding. No, nope, always. Chest, every single time. Always. It never got better? Um, I would just say the thought was always there, you know, because you don't know what's behind closed doors. You don't know what's behind that car. Yeah. You don't know what's in that alley. You, you know, the subject has the element of surprise on you because they know you're coming for them, okay? And we know that we're going in there to get them, but we don't know what we're getting ourselves into. They know we're coming. Yes, so right, exactly. They have the so element of surprise. So that's like what Bob was saying, like yeah. zero to 100. In, yeah. So the, the call comes, it's the same thing now. Correct, correct. You know, and uh, it, it never changes. I mean, being a police officer, you always have to be on your guard and you always have that butterfly effect in your stomach saying to yourself, you know, okay, I got to think tactics, but, you know, listen, this is reality, especially in shootings. I mean, my husband can tell you, you know, he, uh, he's been in some situations himself. And, uh, you know, it, it's very scary when you know you come close to death. And, and I have been there. My husband has been there. And um, this is then again going back into the 80s. You know, when you have a round, a bullet, there's a shootout and there's a bullet and it hits the brick that you're six inches away from and you get hit in the face with something and at that time I was a rookie I didn't know what it was and I got hit with the brick I didn't know until the detectives came and they were canvassing well the crime scene came and says you have no idea that was a bullet that hit that brick because I said I heard go by my ear I didn't know what that was I was a rookie and they said that 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 bullet that they fired hit that brick and that brick is what hit your face you were within like inches of being shot in the face or in the ear or in right, the head the brain, it was that what, close yeah. my mm-hmm. husband too when he was a rookie the stop yeah, sign a lot of for us like there's the saying within the police department that when the public needs help they dial 911 and they call the cops well us as cops when we need help we end up calling our ESU team uh, with that is hypothetically we see a man with a gun we chase him he goes into a building I'm not so eager to go into there blindsided because the person could be waiting on the other side of the door. They could be three or four other people in there. At this point in time, you slow the situation, call for the ESU to come down. Uh, my wife will say she'll come out there. They'll have the heavy vests on. They'll have the bullet, uh, bulletproof shields. The bunker. They'll have different tools that they can use that obviously we don't have that on patrol. Um, and then once the situation, because like anything, any police department wants to slow the situation down. We don't want to jump in there like the OK Corral type scenario. Mm-hmm. No, because at that point in time, it would be foolish us first to rush in because we end up may get ambushed and so forth. And this has happened in the past. And we've learned from, unfortunately, the deaths of other policemen as to we learn from their actions that they did on that day. Um, so for us, slow it down situation if the person's isolated and contained we know he's there like my wife was saying now it's esu's job they'll have hostage negotiation they'll speak with them if at some point in time there'll be somebody who says they just don't rationalize the situation that they're in or they say i'm going to fight it out with the cops and that point there the heavy weapons they know they don't have the nine millimeter or the forty cal. Yeah. They'll have submachine guns. They'll have our you know AR-15s. The ESU. They yes, have they'll have heavy, heavier yeah. weapons. Maybe the other side too. That's yes. Scary yes. Part. Well, that's unfortunately back in the day when we were there, the Uzi nine millimeters were always the the, the local Weapon drug dealer's choice. favorite, mm-hmm. where they could pull the trigger and shoot 50, 60 rounds. And we had thirty eight. And we had thirty eight <laughs> at the time. <laughs> but at that point, you appreciated a, right. a good brick building, yes. a good solid car, things that you could always run for cover. 
But part of, like we're saying with the issues duties, is that we, as the uniformed persons, we stop, call for the specially trained people to come in. They take over the situation. And after 9-11, the chemical weapons, the chemical um, warfare, shall we say, and there's numerous accounts of ESU and obviously the FBI and everybody else making arrests and, and happening to where they arrest situations and people obviously before they intended target areas or, or, or their mission would be complete. Right. There's been numerous times where they've gone and arrested people in a building in Brooklyn. Their plot was to go and blow up the Brooklyn Bridge. It's all caught oh, wow. ahead of time. Yeah, and but we don't hear about that. Of course, well, we hear every once in a while. You do, yeah. but yeah. but some really. of these things we have to, a lot more. you know, yeah. and, and you understand for our security. why. For our security, yeah. yes. So some yes. of these things that we are talking about, we can't get into specifics. Yeah, but uh, make it be certain that the NYPD is out there, and um, they're trying their very best to contain any kind of. Um, 9-11 attack again yeah. so were you involved in 9-11 no okay no that's yeah that's another whole yeah. story right because i'm thinking yeah. even just time-wise that probably makes sense yep. on time but but we lost most of our friends there and yeah. uh and that's real i mean that's yeah that's, like that's somebody who unfortunately yeah. started the regular day out like as if it was a nine to five day right goes into the city they get the call saying that a plane hit the building and at that point, it just stumbles effect from yeah, there. Right. And that's something where when we were coming around thinking about what we want to do with our lives, becoming a police officer and stuff, yeah, we know the risks involved. Like it's hypothetically, unfortunately, today's day and age, you wouldn't think that an office worker would be like, okay, I'm going to the office today. And then unfortunately, a lunatic goes in there with a gun and starts shooting up 30 people in the yeah. office. Or you at wouldn't school, expect that as a daily school. duty yeah. as a receptionist yeah. at, a, at a building. Right. For us with cops... Every call we go to, there's a person with a gun, meaning us. Now, I'm a bigger guy. Doesn't mean that I'm invincible. If I get jumped no. by three people, guess what? My gun is probably going to come out of my holster at some point, and I will probably be shot. That's a reality of the work. But we can't let that hinder us every day from going no. out and doing the job that we no. love to do. Because, because you, you can't take advantage, like he was saying. You can't take I just have to interject. Sure. You can't take advantage of that because even in a senior citizen's building where a cop may slack off, and it has happened when I worked with somebody, thought it was, oh, senior citizens, nothing can happen in there. Well, I'm here to tell you, I rolled down the stairs with another female officer while this male officer sat there. We went down six flights of stairs with this subject, all because this male officer thought it was, oh, senior citizen, no big deal. And it wasn't a senior citizen. It happened to be someone that was abusing his father. And he sat back, and wow. we went down six flights of stairs, okay? And we were able to contain the subject. Unfortunately, my wrist wasn't able to, but, wow. um, you know, so you can't take anything. Whatever call, people say, oh, it's a routine call. Nothing no is routine. ever routine. Nothing. Trust me. And I have been on some other calls, um, and I don't want to get into it on the show because we'll be here all day. But uh, I'm here to tell you that... Uh, uh, nothing is routine. Nothing. Even an aided, simple aided case where somebody needs an ambulance. Trust me, nothing is nothing. routine. Okay, so in your... in, oh. <laughs> I'm thinking, how do you even get trained to prepare for anything? Right? Because, I mean, when they're training you, they have to train you for what they think you are going to be up against. But then, like something, obviously, like 9-11, it's, you, can't, you can't prepare no. for that. Um, but you can prepare in 
indeed, right? We can compare like yes. it, what you are trying to accomplish, which is contain people, slow things yes. down, that kind of stuff. And unfortunately, it takes a tragedy to educate, to re-educate. So, I see that. Um, with the ESU and other departments, um, like our Intel department and Canine and Mounted, and you know, there's bomb, you know, the bomb squad. Every day we're getting trained, so um, we learn. And the more intel we get, the better trained we are. And unfortunately, times have changed since 9-11, and the technology now is beyond. So, um, you know, we are not like this rinky-dink police department where they think, oh, you know, we can just go in there and do another 9-11. No, you guys really need to think twice about that. I mean, every police department now is really very up on everything, and um, counterterrorism is one of the main focuses. And um, I think that that's a very good asset to any police department to interact with the counterterrorism department because you do learn a lot from people all over the world that have been dealing with terrorists. So that's how we get trained. So um, I think that that is a very good thing um, that the police department developed and they continue to develop with the counterterrorism. And then the more they learn, the more we're able to be trained properly. Do you have, okay, so you mentioned tech has individually, do you have more high tech things that you have to figure out? I mean, I'm just like, my, my son's a good video gamer and, you know, the, my husband brings home this drone the other day and, you know, he's like, oh, you know, my husband's like, hey, let me to show you how to do this, right? He has right. it on his phone and whatnot. And my son literally grabs the phone from him. He's like, Bzzz, you know, starts flying this drone. Like, I mean, well, I don't even know why we were there, right? So is that is that an aspect of, of the work now that you have? Do you have tech that is, you know, for these digital natives, these kids who are, you know, now coming onto the force yeah. that they're uh, interacting with? Yeah, well, when we came on, we didn't have cell phones. Now everything is done technology with the police department. A lot of it is done with cell phones. You're given a phone? Oh, yes. Okay. Given a phone. Um, offices are also assigned now. Radios. Everybody has a radio. We've never had to take home radio. We never even had enough radios, like I stated earlier. Yeah. Um, so now every officer has a cell phone. Everything is done through the cell phones. Um so for someone like myself that's retired, when I go into one police plaza now, I'm getting treated as a civilian. Even though I have my credentials, um, it's more geared towards the safety aspect. So, I mean, I, I totally understand that even though, you know, hey, listen, I worked for this police department for so many years, right. you know, and now you're making me feel like an outsider. But I understand that uh, with the technology change, time has changed, and it's for everyone's safety. So there is a lot of technical... Um, how do you want to say workshop that people yeah, have to learn say, now? Yeah, they yeah. have to learn now. Everything. Yes, yeah. Okay. Absolutely. And it's one of the departments where you're always going to want more information. More information is the key because, like anything, up until years ago, we didn't have to take our shoes off when you went through the airport. Right. Well, why did you? Because somebody came up with a, an inventive way of trying to put a bomb in your sneaker. Why do we have it? We had another person who had some type of chemical on his underwear, okay, trying to get through the airport to take down a plane. We're always learning, and you always want that. You always want yes. more training. The best people come out of situations when they are trained to the most that they can, and that's something that you always want because for us as individuals, first off, it puts us in a better perspective when we're going into a situation, knowing that, okay, it, the situation could turn into A, B, and C. There's always a D. There's always yeah. somebody that's trying somebody to think ahead of, of the game. Mm -hmm. That's yeah. what we have to stay on top of. And when we, yeah. or should we say, when the NYPD sends offices to another country, they'll send them to Israel, they'll send them over oh, to do. England. Oh, yes. They'll send them there and they'll listen. For training? And they'll yep. 
they'll be trained and assess the exact aspect of what occurred there, how it was, was it a bomb, was it a gas, was it whatever weapon or, or mechanism that it was, yeah. and they take that back and they train themselves. And from that point there, everybody else is more trained. Yes. I mean, the recent bombings that they had with these mail bombs, people that were assigned the post office, they saw something. It looked like the rest of the ones that were going through the mail. They stopped the process, said, this is a red flag, and they address it. So everybody always needs to be trained, Yes. especially in, in the world that we live in today. Yeah. And for NYPD to send people abroad to get trained and to look at crime scenes, to look Fantastic. at evidence, it's great. Yeah, it's really in today's day and age, yeah. that's what we need to do. You know, and, and they want to keep New York safe. I mean, I think everybody should understand that, you know, people think that we're living in a communistic society where why should I have to take my shoes off or why should I have to wait 20 minutes to go into the airport? People, you need to realize, look what happened 9-11. Countries have been doing this for 40 years. Yes. If it's to save your life or to keep another person's life safe, I'll wait that extra 15, 20 minutes, hour, just so I don't have to say, okay, now I'm up on a plane and something might be there, and I have to make a turn and come back around. If you're lucky. if That's what I was just going to say, yeah. if you're lucky. So people think that, um, you know, we're trying to, Big Brother's watching us, and it's unfair, and it's inhumane, and it's against our civil rights. People... This is for your safety. It's not about civil rights, right. and it's not about people trying to say, oh, you know what, you can't walk down the street because you're this way or you're that way or you don't belong in this neighborhood or whatever it is. It's about safety. That's all it's about. And if people think otherwise, then you know what, you really need to rethink what your life is about. What is your life worth? Right, right. You know, and uh, that's the sad part. You know, everybody and thinks it's just putting people against people. It's not about that. It's about safety. It's about learning. You don't want to be the next statistic, and you don't want to be a, a, a family member of someone that was a statistic because whether whatever you believe was right or wrong, a person is dead, mm -hmm. and that's what you have to realize, or a person is injured, or someone's life was affected traumatically. You're not thinking about someone else. You're just thinking about yourself. And that's yeah. what people really well, and I think it's if we we're so fortunate here in the U.S. because we're so safe so much of the time. I mean, Correct. we really are. When you yeah. talk about places like Israel and other parts of the world, yeah. that uh, regular civilians do get on the bus and think, "What's going to happen to me today?" And that yeah. doesn't happen here for us, you know. Correct. So, as a general rule, I mean, certain neighborhoods, I get it, all that happens. But um, I think we're fortunate in that way. And so then, yeah. it's kind of ignorance is bliss, maybe for those of us on the the lay side here okay i want to get back to the sewer because i want to just <laughs> i want to think about for um for people because uh, you know we'll run out of time really quickly and so if i'm thinking that um i'm going to ask you a couple questions as sure. we kind of like come to the to the end but I, I how how did you deal with getting into a, a sewer like a confined space oh. i'm claustrophobic i think i would just <laughs> again there's this is not a job for me this is why this show is so great because yeah. i could already tell you from the first five minutes that i'm out <laughs> like it's, i can't do this but but it, it is a job for a lot of people and i would want people to feel empowered um to go and do this and especially to go to these next levels if they thought you know what i want to do this and i can achieve my dreams and for women especially for those of us who've you know been in male-dominated industries right. and have you know grown up in different generations when the acceptance wasn't there right um, it's important to, to tell the story so how 
what is the other training and how did you end up in the sewer? Uh, you obviously <laughs> got out. Thank goodness. Oh, thank God. How gross was that? Oh, it was after I had rats. Oh, <laughs> God, I can't imagine. I'm just thinking, you know, I lived in New York when they had, you know, they have rats in the subway right. all the time. But remember like w- a while before, before like the Giuliani cleanup, yep. like it was disgusting. Oh, it I was. mean, there was literally rats like climbing up on parking meters and they were as big as like a, a small Cats. dog. Oh yep. yeah. It was gross. Yep. So that's when you were in the sewer. Yep. That's when I was in the sewer. All right. Tell me more. And uh, we went in the sewer. And like I said, um, they were teaching us how to read the gas meters and how in case you were in a confined space, no matter where you were, even in a smoke-filled room, um, if you got caught up on something, especially if you had a sky pack, which is your breathe, you know, something you breathe through, it's your oxygen, um, your air, actually, um, they wanted to put you in that situation in case you ever got caught up in a situation like that, you would know how to get yourself out of it. So if you do go into a sewer, which is very narrow, and God forbid there are so many things sticking out, if your flashlight goes out and you're in the dark, you have to be able to, you crawled in with the light? Well, now you don't have a light. Let's, I'm using that as an example. Well, you have to be able to find yourself a way out. So that's why they trained us with that. Did you have to do that? I did, and it was gross, because when I came out of the sewer, it was covered in fecal matter, and it was just disgusting. How many times did you have to do it? (laughs) For the training once, and I was lucky, because I never Never had to get a call on it. (laughs) I never did. Because I would panic. I think about those kids, you know, in in Thailand that had to go through that, and you, I I mean, I was following that so closely, because I think these poor kids, it's poor everyone, the divers, everyone, but it's that kind of a situation where, you know, there's some people who are trained, but these kids aren't trained. They can't even swim. I know. And, and God bless them because, God bless you the know, whole, that whole team. Yeah. I mean, I was trained in it, but you know what? I don't know. In today's today's day and age, I'm a lot older. Um, I don't think I would be able to withstand being there that long, right. you know, because how changed. old were you? So this is still in the uh, under 32 I was range. 20, I was 27. When yeah. I went in okay. There. Yeah. So, you know, and now I'm in my 50s. Was that the was that the hardest part of the training? Would you say? The hardest part. I'm sure, of the it was training. the grossest. It was. Oh, it absolutely no doubt. was. The but was grossest. it the most difficult? You think, or was there something else that mentally or physically um, was more difficult than that? You know, for me, because I was so excited about doing it, everything for me was a challenge. So I didn't find anything difficult because it was a challenge, and that's what I like. What I think I would find difficult is if I put my mind to the challenge and I couldn't complete it, and I would have to say, "Well, I can't do this," and I would have to leave the unit. That would be the most difficult thing for me to do, walking away from something I wanted to do because I could not do it. Like but the mental, the mental game, yes. you mean? Yes, but if I could not do it, I don't belong in that unit. And right. that would be the most difficult thing for me to do, walking away from something that I thought I could do. But I gave it my best shot, but it would be very disappointing. And that would be the most difficult thing. That's a hard thing. Yeah. That's what they talk about, like the 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 people who don't make the seals. So it's a, it's your level. It's that level of training, right? And everyone is equipped physically probably by then, but yeah. there's just that mental test that you have to go through yeah. and because they know they're going to know they're going to be in freezing water for, you know, hours and days sometimes, you know, to be able to, to do these missions. So and that would have been my dream, but my parents I was going to ask join, you what? Okay, I wanted to join the Navy when I was 17, and my parents said no. They wouldn't sign for you. Nope. They but would then not. you turned 18, and what happened? You just well, I already had a good job, and then my dad got sick, and then I was waiting 
waiting for the police Life department. Happened. And then back then, it was a whole different ball game if you wanted to join. You know, once I had this job, the police department just invested all this money. You had to go through channels, I mean, like governmental channels, to get signed off on so they can send you for training there. And that just wasn't happening. So my biggest regret, if you want to ask yeah, me in life, yeah. would be not joining the Navy. That's my biggest regret. Because um, there you would have wanted to do what exactly? Would you have wanted to be the seal first? <laughs> well, two things. I wanted to be the first F-18 fighter pilot okay. well, female. You mean actually in combat, right? Yes. Because we know we have yes. them, right? But not in combat. Yeah. Yes, and we didn't really have that back then. Mm-hmm. And then uh, my second choice would have been to have tried out for the Navy SEALs. Do I think I was good enough for them? I don't think I could pass the training, but I would have given it a try. Right. Yeah. And then you could have written the book and the whole thing. I know. That's (laughs) why I always think every time I'm interviewing someone on the show, I'm thinking, when are they going to write the book? Because there's so many, so many great stories that come from this. So many people ask me that you should really write a book. And it's kind of like, you know, sometimes I do want to write a book because there are positive thing yeah it's an inspiring story and that's well just keep telling the story you know i mean it's however the information comes out exactly and you know what i survived you know i survived being a police officer and uh you know i can remember 90 percent of the stories in my head that that stuck in my head and some were not so good but some were very positive and uh i'm glad that i was able to experience well and even now to say that there's nothing else that you would have done because even going to the navy you're, you wanted to do the same kinds of things. The skills that you have are the same, right? The person that you were going to bring was going to be the same, right? So you're you're going to be that person. Just maybe it was going to be the Navy, maybe it's the NYPD, but yeah. that that is awesome yep. because that's like dreams do come true, yeah. right? Here it is. That's happening. Here it is. And I would have never met my husband, right? <laughs> Unless you wanted to be something else. Was there anything else you would have no, done? It's it's no oh, no certainly not. Since you were a kid, me, oh your dad good. was yeah. a cop. Yeah, also, my dad was a police officer. My older brothers five became of police officers. Oh, I four, see. So God, four out of five kids became cops yeah my dad passed i was two my oldest brother john was eight wow mom was single parent now back in the 60s early 70s so she had her hands full for sure but we you know you you learn to appreciate things in life and like i said i mean i'm the person who if one door closes there's always another one that opens and it's the same thing because with my wife it's one where she wanted to do this and she was in a you know a female and a male dominant job so you had to overcome first that stigmatism of being a female and which me personally, I've worked with male officers and female officers. I've worked with female officers that are out of the car before I can even put the car in park. <laughs> and I've worked with male officers that were the same, if, if not. You know, everybody is an individual. Right. And yeah. that's what, like I said, your upbringing, your desire to accomplish a goal is something that you set your mind to. And if you have to jump over a couple of obstacles to obtain it, you do it. And that's the one thing with my wife. It's one where she didn't have the picture perfect growing up. Uh, but that didn't deter her. She mm. kept setting a mind, setting her goals, and achieving one every step along the way. And that's something that takes, you know, it's it's very, and she'll be the person, oh, I'm not modest, or just, no, no, it's no big but, deal. Right. It's nothing. Thank but you, you know. there is somebody who wanted to do that that wasn't able to. Yes. And you can't sit there and treat that person any differently. Mm-hmm. And it's one where, like I said, there are people that wanted to go into ESU that couldn't do the job. There are other people that were too gung-ho because that would be a, a downfall, too, in yeah, some aspect. Right. But it's level-headed people. You realize what it is. You can't accept – you can't be bitter about disappointments, especially in the career field that we chose. You can never because give up. as one as one door closes with the NYPD, you could be a patrol cop. You could be a canine cop. You could be a mounted cop. You could – Bond admin. You could be bond the tech. desk, right? You yeah. could be an admin person. You, there, there are so many opportunities where once you do get hired – 
there's various doors that you could choose, especially for careers. You could be working in a helicopter, flying a helicopter, driving a oh, boat. That's super interesting. Uh, there's so many. You could be oh, scuba you'll diving. experience it. Yeah, no, I'm really interested in that, <laughs> right? Because that's, that's good so for people to know, right? Just get in. Absolutely. Once you're in there, at that point, then there are so many doors oh. to choose from. Especially if you're so good, many. like you said. Like if you're yeah. good, you keep a clean record, you you know do yeah. your job well, you get along with people, all that. Yeah. Just like any any job, I imagine. People don't know that there are thousands of units in the NYPD. Thousands. I mean. And the best way to, to figure that out is just get in. Just, just get in. And get then, yourself a you job know what? There. But make sure if you want to be a police officer that this is what you want to do. Don't just use it as a stepping stone to go into some other form of career because you're really going to take it away from someone that really wants that. And you took that opportunity away from them. And, you know, there are a lot of people that what just... What would be an example of what you would skip? Like you would be a police officer to skip to some other... Well, there's a few people that I know that they became police officers just to put themselves through college and then they went into the finance business oh. and then the financial uh, crash and now they're sitting there and it's it's funny how things work out. You were a police officer, you had a steady pension at the end of 20 years, you right. had health benefits and everything else, but you chose to use that to pay for your college, which is fine, but you went into the financial business and you blew all your money and then it crashed and now you're going to bash other people for having city pensions I see. or health benefits. But been, been you know, ready to do that every yeah, day. Yeah. But you had that job. When I was twenty years old, I sacrificed everything. I had no friends, no social life, nothing. I made that money so I could retire when I was forty years old right. and afford everything I wanted and say, I made that money. I didn't need to rely on anybody. And I did that, you know. And some of these people we have a lot of jealous friends that, that say, Oh, well, you know, you get this pension and all this and now I worked all these years and I'm walking away with a four oh one K and it doesn't have But you chose that. Right. Exactly. When you were 21, you were out in the bars drinking and having a good time and dating. What was I doing? Sitting down in Central Brooklyn, which is our holding cell, for three, four days with smelly people, not eating. I smelled. I didn't eat. I was just like them. And you know what? That's the choice I made for $15 an hour. And for years upon years, yeah. and then you're, and then you're married. You get married. You're in a, a newlywed, and then you're passing each other in the middle of the night. All these are sacrifices that add up to bigger things, and it, it's hard for people to get that if you haven't made correct the sacrifice. Correct, and that's. I'm glad that we did this interview, and I'm glad that hopefully, whatever me and my husband and you discussed could help somebody else out. I oh, hope I'm that sure. you know. I hope that somebody likes to listen to the story and likes to listen to the experiment, the experience that I've had. And put your mind, if you want to put your mind to something, do it. Don't let anyone stop you. Never, ever, ever give up. I've never given up with certain health issues until I found someone that listened to me, really listened and fixed me to the best that I could possibly be. And I know it's only going to get better. And thank God for him. And I just, I don't know if I could say who you it was. You say how we know each other. <laughs> well, I, <laughs> well I'm just thinking as we're talking, when you're talking about everything that you do, because my husband is a physician and we always, the joke in our house is everyone has to do a residency. If you're going to be successful in this life, you know, he trained for for eight years with almost no money. You know, I was mm-hmm. supporting us and then, you know, right. we go on and end up having kids and all this kind of stuff. There's a lot of sacrifice of that goes into being any, a lot of these jobs. So yeah. And in, in your yeah. case, that's how we are able to know each other, which is and, great. And your husband saved my life and gave me back my, 
gave me back my sense of being beautiful again, gave me back my sense of being positive again and knowing that I can breathe again and I will look beautiful again. And he took the time and the compassion to sit there and I didn't even have to tell him what was wrong with me. He knew what was wrong with me seven weeks out of surgery and he's had a dozen visits with me and anything I had that was addressed, he addressed. And you have no idea what your husband has done for me. He gave me back my life. Thank you. And I will forever be grateful to both of you. Thank you. Thank you for saying that, especially coming from you who has seen so much in her life to have that be such an impactful thing. And it's what what we do here. I'll just, you know, just kind of say, because here we are sitting in in our beauty office. And that is what we do is we're here to support people just as you've been in your entire career. And that's what life's all about. Right. So it's however, however anyone could support the other people, if you're in a position to do it for sure do it okay so i'm going to finish on one one quick question that i'll ask to both of you um the best advice that you could give someone who was thinking you know maybe that maybe someone there's 15 16 18 thinking i'd like to be a become a policeman or a policewoman should i go to college should i go to jc should i just go join the academy what's the best advice you would give someone well the best advice right now that i would give you have to have college for everything so um if you really want to be a police officer and you can afford to go to college you need that college degree because no department's going to help you and if you want to be a police officer put your mind to it put your heart and soul into it but know that there are going to be a lot of sacrifices so you have to prepare yourself mentally hopefully from this interview you can get a lot of insight that there are going to be a lot of sacrifices that you're going to have to give up and you have to be willing to make those sacrifices so if you really want this job and it's your dream that's what you're giving up. If you really don't want it and you want to be something else and have a happy life and a happy marriage and think that everything's going to be great with another job, it can happen in any job. So, you know, so take this very seriously. What I said and what my husband said, there are a lot of sacrifices. Make sure this is what you want to do, but you can still have a great family and a great life with your partner, but there are a lot of sacrifices and hopefully your partner is willing to make those with you. Yeah. Life choice. Uh, College is a definite. Stay in college. Try to get a degree because, unfortunately, in today's world, you need the degree as a stepping stone for any occupation pretty much along there. Uh, Second is be true to yourself. If you want to be a police officer, then you know, okay, I can't get drunk every weekend. I have to sit there and oblige by, okay, even though marijuana may be legal here, guess what? You don't want to smoke it to the point where it's going to impinge you from getting that job, Uh, whether it's a police officer or any job. Uh, The one thing that is great about this job is that once you get onto being a police officer, there's many opportunities from within the department to advance to. Uh, If you don't choose to be a police officer and you want to do another career path, make sure it's something that you like because there's something about getting up to work. For us, every day was a different day. I didn't go to an office with a suit on. I went to work with casual clothes, put on a police uniform, dealt with what it was. When I took the police officer uniform off, I'm Joe Q citizen again. And that's something where you have to be happy with what you're doing because that will make you strive forward. And if you do like what you're doing, then you take it to the best of your ability that you can do. Not every person can be a brain surgeon, but guess what? There are many, many other fields that are equally satisfying to the people that really want to obtain a specific goal. And don't let life's things that happen while you're younger, it can affect you long-term and especially career-wise. 
So make a smart choice to where you're not doing anything that will jeopardize your advancing in any type of career that you want to do forward. And by that I mean if you do drugs, you drink and drive, things along those lines where you're putting other people in jeopardy as well, that's not a good thing to do. And no matter how many times you get kicked down, pick yourself up, yep. dust yourself off, tomorrow's a new day. And just strive forward for whatever you wish to obtain that makes you happy. Stress is allowed in your your, your human life. Right. You are allowed to have stress and there's nothing wrong with speaking to someone if you have stress no matter what you do. And you know what? You're human. And if anybody thinks that because you have to speak to psychologists or psychiatrists is an embarrassment, well, you know what? It could save your life. You know, so keep moving ahead. Don't let anyone put you down and just stay positive and stay true to what you want to be in life. Don't do it for anyone else. Do it for yourself. Oh, it's such it's such great advice. I, I want to go do something. I, mean, I can't be a cop, but I'm gonna <laughs> but I'm gonna do something great with my life, and I really appreciate it because. Um, I think so few of us would ever have the opportunity, I haven't, to sit down with two very you know, successful people and people who are really doing everything they can for our community and for fellow citizens and for regular Joes, Josephines, like <laughs> like myself. So thank you so much, both of you, Stacy and thank Bob, you. for thank being you. here with us today and sharing your stories. We appreciate it very much. Thank you. We appreciate you. So there you have it with Stacy and Bob and that incredible interview, listening to all their experience and the things that they see and the way that they view their job is, I think, super inspiring. And it's just really incredible to listen to them. So as usual, what I've done for you is taken some little excerpts, pulled out the interview, kind of if you've gone through it the entire way, thank you because I think it was a really good interview and we appreciate, of course, you hanging in there with us. And now you'll get to kind of revisit some of the the little quotes that are pulled out from the interview and give you a sense of what the conversation was all about. So let's listen to Bob first, because one of the things we talked about here is what it is to be a New York City cop. And then Stacy is with the ESU, the Emergency Services Unit. So think of that in our vernacular as kind of like a SWAT team, like the, the really serious um, people. So let's uh, listen to Bob just giving us, giving us an idea of how the ESU even gets involved. For us, like there's the saying within the police department that when the public needs help, they dial 911 and they call the cops. Well, us as cops, when we need help, we end up calling our ESU team. Okay, so that gives you an idea. So the ESU would be the cops for the cops. Um, so Stacy again, was our ESU officer and listened to her give us a, a whole idea about the training and the types of things that they get involved with. Listen to her talking about some of these weapons. With a normal street cop, they either carry a 9mm or a forty caliber handgun. A heavy weapon with the emergency service unit um, consists of several different things. We have automatic 
rifles. We have shotguns. We have um, shields, protective shields, which shields us in case anybody's firing at us with heavy weapons. So that's... Oh, like in riots and things. That's when you would get called also? Okay. Riots. Well, we get called. Mounted gets called. A lot of units get called, um, especially with executive protection. And what executive protection is, we maintain the rooftops and the perimeters when the dignitaries come into town, especially the president. I mean, what? I didn't even think about that. I mean, I really didn't even think about that, which shows you, I guess, my naivete in the space. But just think so all the dignitaries that come for the UN and in New York and uh, you know in your local area you always have people coming that have some level of prominence and importance who other people would want to get at so they have responsibility for all of that so if you have to be up on a rooftop protecting the president uh think about who you have to be and the kind of training that you're going to need to be able to do that job appropriately so listen to uh Stacy talking some about the actual training we go to special tactics school, STS. Um, we are we also are trained in repelling out of helicopters. We're trained um, repelling off buildings. We are also trained in climbing up all the bridges in New York City. So there's a lot that we're trained in. We also have um, training with gas meters um, in case of an explosion or there's a gas leak where back 20 years ago um, when I first got trained, 23 years ago when I first got trained, um, we had to go into a sewer and they taught us about confined space training and and you have to go in there with a gas meter in case of an explosion to detect gas or radon or something in there and you can when you're in the sewer it's very dark. You can get caught up on things in a very confined space and you have to be trained how to get yourself out of those situations and it's a very complex thing but uh, it's something you have to do as part of our training and you have to pass everything there's no freebies if you can't pass one of the um, training curriculum you will not be put into that unit I mean whoa I was just listening to her is just it was so cool. I really am excited for all of you to listen to the whole episode with, with her talking about being in the sewer. You just got to get that. Like this is a, a sewer. First of all, it's in New York City. There are rats and just vermin everywhere. It is. I can't. It's disgusting. I can't even imagine being able to do that and then have to do a job when I was in there and then get myself out. It's just like, it's incredible. Really, really incredible. So beyond that, of course, she's got more training, what what we would expect. Um, and listen to her, give it just another little glimpse about the ongoing training. With the training from a regular patrol officer to emergency service is you have to, well, at that time we became EMTs. Um, we were taught how to repel Full EMTs, like certified? Full certified EMTs. We were taught how to do repelling from helicopters, buildings, water towers. Um, Like a Green Beret or something. Yeah. Really? I mean, like, isn't that like an army paratrooper? (laughs) But it was cool because we were cops, you know? And um, I walked, the first bridge I did was I walked up the Brooklyn Bridge, the most famous Brooklyn Bridge, and that was the highlight of my career. So cool. I mean, just think... I think what's really neat about this is if this is something that you would look at as a career, that you would grow so much as a person just doing the training to get you there. I think it's kind of like what they do in the Army and the SEALs and all that. So much of it is just the mental growth that you go through. So uh, Stacey's a pretty incredible person, and talking to her was really 
interesting. And I don't want you to get the impression that she's some superwoman. Her parents were not like Hulk Hogan or, you know, any anything like that. She's just like a, a regular person who set her mind to doing great things. So listen to her give a kind of a background of where she came from. I've seen a lot of horrific things, and um, there's a lot of times that I sat and I spoke with children that were abused or people that thought, oh, you're a cop and you have a great education, which I did not. I dropped out of school when I was 16. Oh, great. We'll talk about that, too. You know, I got a GED, and I made a better life for myself, but I tried to talk to the people that were there and say, listen, if I could do it, you can do it. Just because you're low income or you have no education doesn't mean you can't better yourself in life. It's not always about um, having a prestigious college degree. It's not always about coming from money and being fortunate to have everything you want. You have to experience life. And I learned a lot from being a cop from people that um, experienced other things. It really taught me a lot about people. Yeah, you're getting a sense of who Stacy is. And again, if you get a chance when you listen to the full episode, you'll really understand more about her background and how amazing it is that she has done the things that she has given her um, given her upbringing. So uh, listen to her talking some more about what it is, um, how she even kind of figured out, because I really wanted to know if you're a kid coming from a certain environment, how do you even know how to become a cop? I, I wouldn't even know how how to do this. And so she did what I think a lot of people I've been talking to will say, you know, find a mentor, find someone that you can talk to. So her examples were other police men and women in her neighborhood. So listen to her talking about that experience. I would go over there and I would talk to them and ask them like different things like what's your experience, you know, um, are you happy doing it? Um, you know, do you do you feel comfortable? I mean, I see sometimes people say things and abusive ways and you guys act very professional and how do you in how do you not internalize the abusive people and they said it's a job and this is what we knew what we were getting involved in and um the way to give back to people that are abusive or um do not like the police is to just kill them with kindness good advice good advice any day i think but that just gives you a, a sense of her you know, tenacity and how proactive she was in pursuing this goal. So you get a sense of who Stacy is. I'm going to just give you a little glimpse into her, like personally. So you get, this is really cute in a, in a way, her talking about um, how she overcame. I mean, she's not, a, she's not a big person. She's not like exceptionally strong, you know, other than what she's done on her own. So listen to her talking as we'll go in transitioning and talking a little bit more about her, her training. When I became a police officer, I was 112 pounds at five foot seven, and everybody laughed at me and thought I was a joke and thought I couldn't do the job. I know I joked yesterday. Be... I think you're like a Zootopia. Yeah, right? exactly. like the little bunny. <laughs> exactly. He's gonna exactly. make it. And um, but I trained for this. I was an athlete since I was 16. I was big runner. What kind of sports? What did you runner? Do? I was a big runner. I was into weightlifting. So even though I was 112 pounds soaking wet, and people laughed at me and thought I would never make it, well, I proved them wrong because there is a physical agility test that you do have to take back then before you became a cop. Today's day and age or today's society, you could take it in the academy and they give you many, many chances even if you fail. So that's good to know, just that there's some things that you're going to be expected to do. And along those lines, here's some more information of the kinds of things that you have to do physically in this uh, training to be a cop. 
So back then, um, we had the dummy drag, and the dummy drag was about 225 pounds, and a lot of male officers couldn't drag that dummy. I think it was about maybe 10 to 20 feet, Bob? Yeah, yeah, approximately. How do you drag? Are you able to, is it, what does it look like? What does the bag look like? Is it just like a boxing bag? or like Like a person? It's actually made out of boxing material, but it's an actual person who's okay. about six feet tall. So you're supposed to like pull under the um, the armpits and drag? Yep, pull under the armpits, cross over, and the best way for me, because I was so small, um, most of the weight I carried on my thighs, yeah. and I was able to drag that guy. Because your legs are really strong. Yep, I was able to drag him, and there was a lot of guys that were bigger than me that could not do it. We also had to climb over a six-foot wall. I had no issues with that. We did a run every day. I never, ever, ever once dropped out of a run. And when I got hired, it was in July of 1986. Sometimes we'd have to run in that New York City heat. Oh, which humidity. Was, yep. And it was 107 degrees. There was people dropping out left and right. And to this very day, um, I never dropped out of one run. And I was so, at times, so like sweaty and I was so like fatigued but I said to myself if I drop out then I'm going to prove everybody right that I couldn't make it on this job and I could not you know be like the men Mm -hmm. and I would never let that happen because that was my dream and I was not going to let anyone take it away not even myself yeah it's so cool so you think about that all the physical uh training this is kind of like physical testing but Think about if you're a cop, you have access also to ongoing physical training, which I think is a really cool aspect of of the work also. So you'll have the physical part of being a police officer that all the requirements you have. And then again, the ongoing training. And then there is also some written test that you need to take. Listen to Stacey talking a little bit about that. They ask the same questions in different formats, and I think that they want to see if um, you're consistent with you as a person and your integrity and your mental status, because if you say yes to the same questions, hey, then they know, all right, this person pretty much is focused. If you start giving answers with gibberish and bouncing around and changing answers, well... I guess to them that that wouldn't be a sane person. I mean, if I was interviewing someone and they were all over the place while I was asking the same questions in a different manner, I would think twice too that, hey, something's wrong. Yeah, that's kind of a good tip, I guess, for any interview is to remain consistent. And Bob kind of elaborated on this a little bit more saying, you know, if you're honest, you're always honest. It's easier that way. So good tip from him. So Now we've kind of covered the physical space, the testing space. So now I'm going to give you an idea of our conversation and listening to some of their experiences and just the way that they kind of take in this work that they do. So I think this is probably my favorite quote of the whole interview that's coming up here, just because I think it it kind of sums up what this job is. So listen to Bob here. With this job that we're in, okay, we have adrenaline goes from zero to a hundred within a radio call yep so with this job here we have adrenaline that goes from zero to 100 in a radio call and you think about those phone calls that you get in the middle of the night or you know the call that you get from school and you're you know panicked about your kids whatever it is that for you that once in a, a lifetime or once in a year call they can get these calls every single day, every hour. And it's, it's so true. That just really hit me when he said that. So I think that is a really helpful way to think about the way that you approach this, this type of work. So listen to them talking about how 
you prepare, if at all, for the stressful situations that they might be in. Until you've gone through those stressful situations, there's really not a textbook question or answer that can address that specifically. Yeah. And then as cops, you have to digest what happened. You're always second-guessing yourself as to whether you did something, if, if you did it a different way. But unfortunately, sometimes you're giving split seconds to make a decision that affects you and other people for the rest of their lives. Yeah. Oh. So if, if they if, can help along the process to basically weed out, for lack of a better word, of people that are not eligible, that they feel cannot handle those situations, then that's part of the process. And not everybody that wants to be a cop becomes a cop. And that's kind of an interesting point, too, to think even if this is something that you start out to do, and if for whatever reason you don't finish, it doesn't mean that that's any true reflection on who you are as a person. Just there are some people that are capable and meant for certain jobs. And even if it's you start out with the physical space and you could pass the test and then you get into some of this mental stuff, all those skills that you've built will still be useful for something. And then it's just a matter of, of applying that. But it is it is interesting to know that they do look for really that emotional stability and that mental toughness, if you will. He didn't say it that way. Those are my words, but in terms of being able to do this work. So when they are in encounters, listen to Stacy talking a little bit about, you know, having these cop kinds of encounters. I would just say the thought was always there, you know, because you don't know what's behind closed doors. You don't know what's behind that car. Yeah. You don't know what's in that alley. You, you know, the subject has the element of surprise on you because they know you're coming for them, okay? And we know that we're going in there to get them, but we don't know what we're getting ourselves into. Right, and I think that's kind of the the whole point here that kept going through is just these elements of potential surprise and you prepare as much as possible, but you got to kind of be at the ready and that adrenaline type of a job. So now I'm going to give you an idea of things that they were talking about that you really think that you would see these I don't even think I would see these in a movie, actually, because I could not even conceive of this this type of maneuver, if you will. So get your ears open because this is like you're not even going to believe this if you've never heard it before in terms of talking about some of the things that are potential for cops to run into. And that's in those days. So who knows what it is now? Even worse. And unfortunately, if you did make an arrest there, you would have people that were the bad elements in the in the projects themselves that would throw bowling balls off rooftops, refrigerators off rooftops. Uh, You'd pull up in the police car. They would throw objects at the police car. They would shoot at the police as you drove through the projects. Or they'd make you chase them up to the roof. They'd have pit bulls up there. They would feed them gunpowder, and they would make the police chase you up to the roof, and they would jump across another roof, and when you would open that door, you'd get attacked by a pit bull. I mean crazy like that's just that's just insane to me you can't even make that stuff up right so um i mean and those you know i I don't know if that's just every patrol person but these are the kinds of things that are potential so i think if you have this even if it's a spectrum of experience if you have in your head that that is somewhere on this spectrum of experience and they're talking about new york city and cop in the projects and listen very carefully to what bob said he said in the bad elements you know the way that they look at that people up to in this case really no good but that's not everybody. And that is not clearly when they were talking about not most people. They really viewed being a cop as a community service 
job. And this was interesting to me because I, as a layperson, having no experience with cops, I don't have any cops in my family. I think of cops as people who pull you over, people who arrest you, people who are always on the that side of it. I don't think of cops as community service officers, as team builders. And that just could be the way I was exposed to them when I was younger or the way I thought about them, you know, good versus evil kind of thing. But, um, but I think in talking to them, I really learned that this job is a is a, a communications job. It's a community service job. It's a team building job. It's a, you know, let's work together kind of a job. So listen to Bob talking about that in, in terms of building alliances in the neighborhoods. But the older folks and the good people in the, in the yes. community and the projects, they would come over and talk to you. And you do develop a rapport with them. And at that point, they're the people that you would need rely on when a situation's getting out of hand. If you didn't have a radio because they didn't have that much of the equipment to pass out to all the cops that were there, that person would call up 911. And that person would always look out for the officers there. And like my wife was saying is that sometimes you'd go out there and there would be, say, 50 cops, but you only have 30 radios. So you would go out without the radio, but you would have a plan where, okay, I'll call up every hour. But that, unfortunately, if you're getting involved in a confrontation with somebody, you would rely on the people that you helped during the daylight hours to actually at least call 911 to say, yes, there's an officer here. They may need help. Yeah. So that was good to hear, too. So it's it's not just, uh, you know, good, good, good cops against, you know, bad people. There, there's a, just a lot of community out there in the way that they in the way that they work. So here's Stacy talking a little bit more about what what happens in a confrontation. And this is. This is, again, I mean, I kind of want to flavor this in with the experience. It's not all confrontational. There's team building and all that kind of stuff. And then if there is a confrontation, this is kind of how she views it. Listen, if I got to get hurt, I hate to say it, but years ago, if I got to get hurt, you got you got to get mm-hmm. hurt, you know, and um, it's not my intention, but I'm not going to let anybody go out there and physically hurt me or do, you want to mentally say whatever you want, that's fine. But once you put your hands on me or another officer, that's a whole different story. Um, you know, we're here to protect you. We didn't get up in the morning and say, hey, you know what? I'm going to go to work today and I'm going to beat somebody up because I'm mad at my wife mm-hmm. or I'm mad at somebody. But that's what the general public thought then. And that's what they think now. I thought that was interesting. And I think that's probably I think she's probably right. I think that is probably true. And that's something that we need to take a look at as we think about it. So now everyone has a cell phone. So listen to Bob talking about in the confrontation. This is really good advice. I mean, it's just this is a good thing to, for all of us just to listen to and just kind of take mental note because as he's telling this little vignette or giving this example, I'm you know even recognizing in myself there are times when wow that's just that seems like a silly thing to do given the gravity of whatever situation I might find myself in. So um, listen to him talking about you know cell phone days. Today's day and age, unfortunately. Everybody has a cell phone camera. Somebody could be laying there bleeding. Instead of rendering aid, they take out their cameras and they start videotaping everything. Yeah. Not, it doesn't have to be any interactions with the police. It could be a car accident. It could be somebody yelling at somebody. But now when you get people that come there and agitate the situation, that's the point where, like you said, you're going through enough stress dealing with the, Correct. Uh, the, the situation that you're there for. Now you have outside agitators whether they're saying things, videotaping it, trying to interact because they know that person that you're trying to resolve an issue with. And then at that point in time, like we said, as far as the training level, 
you go back to saying if you are trained and you can handle certain situations, that's great. You will have somewhat of a positive outcome the best that it can under that situation. People may not like the results at the end. We may not like the results at the end. But the end of the situation is it's over, it's complied, hopefully nobody got hurt. And at that right. point in time, we live and we learn from our experiences. Yeah, so put the cell phone away when it's that kind of stuff. I mean, you just, yeah, I think you just had kind of a heads up. I thought that was really infor- good information. Okay, so now moving into, you know, we've done the training. We kind of did the, you know, looking at the examples, things that come up. And now let's talk about the the real thing that I think we all think about if you're going to be a cop is the risk of death, really, and the potential for your fellow officers, or really, in this case, your coworkers, to um, to be killed in the line of duty and, and have other things happen to them. So let's listen to listen to Stacy talking a little bit about that. I don't want to sound cold hearted, but to sit there and see someone dead, okay, that was murdered. I mean, that's something you see on TV, Mm -hmm. you know, uh, to a normal person, it would be horrific. But me being a police officer, it was horrific. But I had to be stoic because I had a job to do. I wasn't cold hearted or anything. But sometimes people perceive us that way, because we are guarding that body at a crime scene, and we have a job to do. And people don't realize that this is our job. We think about the families because, you know what, that could be me lying there. Yeah, for sure. So I'm just going to keep going on this because they, they just gave such good examples and really good information here. So Bob here is talking about every incident with someone having a gun. For us with cops, every call we go to, there's a person with a gun, meaning us. Now, I'm a bigger guy. Doesn't mean that I'm invincible. If I get jumped no. by three people, guess what? My gun is probably going to come out of my holster at some point, and I will probably be shot. That's a reality of the work. Yeah. So in terms of that, let's listen to Bob talk about what he thinks is an expectation of the job. In our line of work, unfortunately, we're the only people that say, okay, today I may not be coming home today. Yeah. It's, a perce- it's a perception that comes with the job. And when people turn around and say, oh, well, a cop got killed. Well, what do you expect? That was his job. It's not my job. My job is not to go out there, or my wife's job is not to go out there and get killed. It's to help people, number one, and to, two, help people by, unfortunately, taking down people that are willing to do harm to other people. Yeah. So the job, that's a risk of the job, but certainly not at all the job, but a real risk. And that's something that Stacy was able to talk with us about in just getting an idea of, of how that impacts another officer. I personally have worked with two dozen cops that were killed in the line of duty. Oh, wow. Like, worked with them, knew them, was friends with them. And I cannot begin to tell you there's not a day that doesn't go by in my life that I don't think about them or their families. It's something that will stay with you forever. You don't have to be married to them. You don't have to be a parent to them. You don't have to be a child of theirs. Working together and knowing them every day, that is your family. So it has a great impact, and it'll be, it will be with me for the rest of my life. Yeah, I, I, you can imagine. I mean, when she said those numbers, I think, one, I don't even work with that many people. And if I did, to imagine that they're gone is... It's just not even routine for those of us who work in, you know, other kinds of, you know, non cop kind of jobs, you know, like non-confrontational physical jobs. I mean, you work in an office or you work in TV or you do whatever you do. You're certainly not in these kinds of situations. So 
one of the things that we also got to talk about that I really, again, I hope you have a chance to listen to the full episode because we did talk about, I asked Stacey, so, you know, so the first time you go out, you know, your heart's pounding. And then the second time you go out, your heart's pounding. And the third time, and, the, and she said it never goes away. So the, that feeling of just that, like what Bob's talking about, that adrenaline, just kind of that you're always at the ready when you're, you know, out on duty. And by the way, half the time when you're not on duty, because you're still someone who's trained to be in these situations. So listen to Stacy talking a little bit about, about, you know, that, that feeling. It's very scary when you know, you come close to death. And, and I have been there. My husband has been there. So coming close to death, you could see both Stacy and Bob have having had that experience. So you imagine pretty much every police person has had something where they were afraid for their life or in, you know, a pretty tense situation. So along with that is the things that you, you would see as a police officer that you wouldn't see as a normal civilian, you know, like myself, I normally not encountering these kinds of situations and pit bulls on roofs and protecting presidents. It's not something that's in my course of the day. So listen to Bob now talking about uh, one of those types of things that um, that cops run into that the rest of us really don't. I mean, every single cop, no matter where you are, will always tell you their right. first unfortunate DOA, mm-hmm. whether it was through a crime, a criminal act, or a self-inflicted act, or just natural causes. But everybody will remember that. And it's something that when we process this all, we all have to take it in, and we all find avenues to direct it Correct. so that at least we can survive mentally to keep doing the job. Yeah. And listen to how he said that too, surviving mentally to keep doing the job. And so that, again, they screen for that to test kind of, or I guess to screen for your mental toughness and stability really, I think is what I would, the word I probably would better use in being a police officer. So it's just helpful knowing who you are again, and if this is something that you can, um, that you can really do. So if you can, what was really cool is, you know, it's such a positive interview and interaction with the two of them. I mean, they love being cops. They just really had such a phenomenal experience throughout life. You know, they were cops for 20 years. I mean, just wealth of experience. So what did they see in terms of the jobs that were out there? Because we're just talking to them as, you know, a patrol officer and, you know, Stacy being in the ESU. What, what else is out there? So we touched on that too. People don't know that there are thousands of units in the NYPD, thousands. It's level-headed people. You realize what it is. You can't accept, you can't be bitter about disappointments, especially in the career field that we chose. You can never give up. as long as one door closes with the NYPD, you could be a patrol cop, you could be a canine cop, you could be a mounted cop, you could... Admin, you could be behind the desk, right? You could be an admin person. there, There are so many opportunities where once you do get hired... There's various doors that you could choose, especially for careers. You could be working in a helicopter, flying a helicopter, driving a boat. Yeah, driving a boat. I wouldn't even think about that. But of course, they have to protect the waters around, you know, around Manhattan and all the boroughs. I mean, duh, really. But but like, this is the cool thing, even talking about so many different industries. We talk about a lot of industries and you say like, oh, of course, they have a, a finance department and a PR department and a, you know, health department, who knows what in these bigger companies, but the police force will be this, a similar situation. And, you know, as in terms of having a career that you could flow through for, you know, 20 years and end up with maintaining, you know, 
basic things like a pension or health benefits. I mean, these are kinds of things that you also want to think about as you're building your career, kind of what do you want it to look like, you know, in, in the end. So they had some really good advice if this is something that you want to take a look at. And I thought this was good advice just overall in general, but they gave some specific advice for um, what about, uh, what do you want to do about getting into the NYPD or into being a police officer? Well, the best advice right now that I would give, you have to have college for everything. So um, if you really want to be a police officer and you can afford to go to college, you need that college degree because no department's going to help you. And if you want to be a police officer, put your mind to it, put your heart and soul into it, but know that there are going to be a lot of sacrifices. So you have to prepare yourself mentally. Hopefully from this interview, you can get a lot of insight that there are going to be a lot of sacrifices that you're going to have to give up and you have to be willing to make those sacrifices. So if you really want this job and it's your dream, that's what you're giving up. Okay, so Stacy mentioned some of those sacrifices and, you know, and the advice, get college if you can, get that under your belt, you'll want to have that. And then some of these sacrifices. So what do those look like? So listen to, uh, listen to them talking about what are the sacrifices. So you would be missing Christmas dinners, New Year's Eve gatherings. Your friends wouldn't understand that. Well, why can't you just put in for the day off? Yeah, basic. I mean, basic things that we not all of us think about, but, you know, you're going to be on potentially on holidays and, you know, maybe, you know, if there's a really serious incident like an earthquake or something like that, I imagine that it would go into longer days and that kind of thing. But again, this is just it's such a fulfilling career and the way that they brought it to life was was excellent just to I mean, I was motivated and I'm like probably the worst person to go out and pick up. But I was um, really intrigued by this whole uh, concept. So listen to Bob talking about his advice for getting into this field. College is a definite. Stay in college. Try to get a degree because unfortunately in today's world, you need the degree as a stepping stone for any occupation pretty much along there. Uh, second is be true to yourself. If you want to be a police officer, then you know, okay, I can't get drunk every weekend. I have to sit there and oblige by, okay, even though marijuana may be legal here, guess what? You don't want to smoke it to the point where it's going to impinge you from getting that job, yeah. uh, whether it's a police officer or any job. Uh, the one thing that is great about this job is that it once you get onto being a police officer, there's many opportunities from within the department to advance to. Uh, if you don't choose to be a police officer and you want to do another career path, make sure it's something that you like because there's something about getting up to work. For us, every day was a different day. I didn't go to an office with a suit on. I went to work with casual clothes, put on a police uniform, dealt with what it was. When I took the police officer uniform off, I'm Joe Q. Citizen again. And that's something where you have to be happy with what you're doing because that will make you strive forward. And if you do like what you're doing, then you take it to the best of your ability that you can do. So that's really it. I think if you're looking at what you can do with your with your whole life, with your career as a police officer or with your career in anything, I think Bob really summed that up. I mean, if this is if this is your goal and this is your career, there's certain tactical things that you can do to prepare, but then it's about being the person who does well in this field. And Stacy and Bob are great examples to look at and say, these are people who have been able to excel, been able to do it amazingly well. And that if listen to their whole interview and get a whole sense for this 
incredible field of law enforcement. I think now that I'm just saying these words, I'm realizing why I have looked at it probably the wrong way without putting in kind of that community service piece because they really are servants of the community and officers of the community. So there you have your fast track. And I hope you got a good sense of what it is to be a police officer and what you might need and how you could even go about doing that. So thanks for listening, and we will see you next time. Taking care of